Airline Pilot Guy, episode 338. Hello, you're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy show, the view from our side of the cockpit door. I'm Captain Jeff, your host, broadcasting live from Studio 210 at the Hotel Indigo in Sarasota, Florida. Today's show was recorded on the 29th of August, 2018. In today's episode, an Airbus 320 goes nose wheelless. Updates on a couple of incidents and accidents from earlier episodes. More news, your feedback, and this week's plane tale, the cargo gods. So get all settled in, tray tables, and seat backs in their upright lock positions. Electronic devices powered on. Flight 338 is ready for pushback. Hello and welcome to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. It's an aviation podcast where we do this pretty much every week, talk about aviation news and answer all of your great feedback. And joining me today to help in that endeavor is from his studio in England, a professional photographer, former RAF, RAAF fighter pilot, current captain for an international airline based in London, Captain Nick. Well, hi there, Jeff. Great to be back on the show again. Looking forward to a good one and uh, some new faces. That's always good for a laugh. Yeah, we're going to talk about that here in just a second. Glad to see you, sir. And also joining us today on his motorcycle from a stately southern mansion in Smyrna, Georgia, barbecue master, bourbon, scotch, vodka connoisseur motorcycle riding pontoon boat skipper and captain for a major u.s legacy carrier captain dana well hello everybody great to be back been a couple of weeks i've been on some extravagant uh, extravagant trips you'll hear about but uh looking forward to another great show well actually i'll, I'll talk about that as well too okay <laughs> well he's not looking forward to a great show then all right well uh great uh we'll uh, look forward i guess to hearing you talk about that dana great to see you again and finally last but not least it's our special music for our guests um so we have a retired u.s air force officer and kc-10 kc-135 tanker pilot and presently a new hire pilot for acme air lisa mays hello so glad to be here are you sure? We'll, nope. we'll find out in a little Not while. Not sure at all. <laughs> <laughs> I think you'll have fun. Uh, all right. So uh, now we have to tell our Trollolo guy to stop singing. Okay, stop singing. Okay. There we go. He is being faded out. He is all gone now. All right. Oh, hey. What did I say? I said stop. T- <laughs> okay. He's just going to join Hillel in the toilet. <laughs> yeah, I think yeah, she has no idea what we're talking about, but yeah, I'll, no. I'll explain it later. Maybe it'll become clear. I don't know. Perhaps not. Anyway, so 
Let's start off introducing. Well, I just it was a very brief introduction there, Lisa. Um, and uh, as I said, uh, you're new at Acme Air, and we're flying this trip together. And uh, learned that you uh, put in a full what twenty years or so? Eight twenty eight. Twenty eight. So wow. I may be new to Acme, but I'm old on this earth. Wow. Thanks. You don't you don't look that old <laughs> at all. That's amazing. All right. Yeah. She is definitely younger than I am for sure. I mean, most everybody is except for Nick. Anyway, um, yeah. So tell us a little bit about you and your and your Air Force career and uh, kind of fill us in a bit. Oh, my goodness. Well, I um, I grew up as an Air Force brat. So I was both my dad and my stepfather taught at the Air Force Academy. And uh, I ended up going to ROTC, University of Colorado. From there, I was supposed to go right to pilot training, but the Air Force had too many pilots. So I went to be an air traffic control officer. Then flew the, then I got the opportunity to fly the KC-135, then the KC-10. And then for 17 years, I taught general aviation, teaching cadets how to fly at the Air Force Academy. And I had a short stint at Frontier, and now I'm at Acme. Oops, I wasn't supposed to say that. Never mind. Uh, well, I mean, you can say that if you want. I mean, I don't know. I've never heard right, of that. Yeah, well, that was good. You were at Acme. Yeah. That's exactly yeah. what I supposed Because you're not, you're no longer with that other carrier. So it's okay. okay. I, think, I think that you're off the hook there. Okay, good. I don't know. If, and, and if they go after you, I, I don't know you. <laughs> never heard of you before. Yeah. So uh, that's, that's really cool. And uh, so I thought she'd be perfect for our show. And uh, I thought that uh, everybody would get a kick out of uh, hearing from you and your perspective on things, Lisa. Oh, gosh. I'm scared I'm going to say something stupid. Well, <laughs> which is that's common. what we do all the time. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, it doesn't matter. It's my normal. See? Okay. Uh, so, let's see. We're on day two of a three-day trip. We started on Tuesday. This is a really nice trip, by the way. It's a double Sarasota layover. We were here in Sarasota yesterday afternoon. And uh, shortly after we got in, we uh, changed into our civilian clothes and headed over to, well, we walked out. We were going to walk over to Bricks Smoked Meats, a wonderful barbecue joint here in uh, Sarasota. And then the sky decided to just open up and uh, got a little stormy. So we thought, hmm, okay, well, let's do the Uber. So after two attempts, <laughs> the first guy that do, that you summoned for Uber uh, apparently was circling around where we were supposed to be picked up. And he, I think he gave up <laughs> and, and charged you for it. I, yes, exactly. But luckily, you I got bring that out back. in Uber drivers. They cancel on me all the time. <laughs> oh, rejection. <laughs> and uh, so I thought, well, let me try it. So I, I put in an Uber request and uh, this person actually found us. I, we kind of found him. We kind of met halfway, I guess, and uh, ended up getting dropped off at Bricks. And uh, we had like a little mini APG meetup. Um, Dean Collett uh, lives in the area. He drove down and met us up at Bricks. And uh, we had a great barbecue meal and some beers. And um, yeah, great conversation. Yeah. It was delicious. Then Dean rescued us and took us back to the hotel. Yes, we got a ride from Dean back to the hotel. So that worked out well. And uh, so, Dean, if you're listening, uh, enjoyed meeting you and uh, look forward to uh, meeting up with you again in the future. Now, we did kind of advertise it was going to be a meetup here, but uh, I guess, you know, being in the middle of the week, uh, it's kind of difficult for a lot of people to make it. I'm not sure exactly how many people live right here in the Sarasota area. But um, anyway, hopefully next time we'll, we'll get a few more people to uh, join us. Uh, let's see. So today, all we did was we left this morning, flew up to Atlanta and then back here. The weather was great for at least our part of the day. And, uh, and we were back at Sarasota International 
I guess it's Sarasota Bradenton International at uh, 12 o'clock. So or just before noon. So rough, nice, easy day. Rough life. Yeah, it's a tough trip. <laughs> Early morning tomorrow morning, though, uh, 4.50 report time. But get back in Atlanta by one o'clock or so. Uh, she is a commuter, uh, lives in where? Colorado Springs? Colorado Springs. Yay. Okay. Yeah. So that's pretty much it. Uh, did I do anything else between the last show and this trip? I do, I'm do. i looking through my list of things to talk about. I do have some other things to talk about, but first, let's talk to Dana. We haven't seen you in a while. You weren't on the last trip. The last two trips, right? I mean, the last two shows, I should say. <laughs> yeah, last two shows. Uh, one, I was on vacation, and then the next one, my in-laws were in town. So uh, I was unable to make either show, but I've got to tell you, I listened, and that's why I kind of hinted towards uh, another great show. Uh, no, yeah, the last two shows were fantastic, uh, especially with uh, Colonel Jeff um, coming on the show. So I enjoyed listening to both of them and really good to uh, talk about the, uh, the horizon air, uh, plane issue and, uh, what happened there. And then, um, then call me a tune Looney tunes, captain. I really appreciate that. My try tune boat. It's kind of funny. I still have more time captain time on that than I do on my airplane. So who is it that called you a Looney tune captain? I'm trying to remember that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I didn't. It was Nick. It was Nick. Yeah. <laughs> me? I yeah, can't imagine me making such a joke. Uh-huh. I can't either. <laughs> you know, you know ne- never. Not a chance in this world. So, but anyways, uh, yeah, it was, uh, took a week vacation. Like I haven't been working. I haven't actually seen it inside of an airplane since August 8th. In seventy. Oh, Nick's coming down. I see that. We'll talk about that in a minute, Nick. Yeah, uh, Nick is showing his app in the video. Uh, so if you're listening to the audio, let's explain his app is a countdown to his retirement. And it says 375, 375 days to go. Very cool. Okay. Just over a year. But who's counting? Nick. Nobody's All counting, right. Nick. Nobody. So tell us about your uh, your vacation, your holiday. Well, uh, uh, I decided to uh, go ahead and take the motorcycle of my lovely bride, and we had a couple of friends come in town from Florida. They had never ridden in the North Carolina, North Georgia, in Tennessee mountains. So we went up there and went to uh, visit the Blue Ridge, uh, the Tail of the Dragon, which anybody that rides knows that's one of the most famous roads in the entire world. 300 and, uh, 300 11 turns no 308 turns and 11 miles it's uh, it's pretty sick and then we went uh, through the smoky mountains then over to the blue ridge parkway um and just spent a lovely week riding the weather was amazingly nice so it was uh, very pleasant to ride um in in the scenery was just spectacular the the company was also uh, awesome so um the motorcycles behaved uh, i behaved so those are the most important things that we can we can ask for, right? So uh, that that was very enjoyable, and then I came back and of course missed the show. We were in the mountains without any uh, internet, cell phone service, or anything. So it was really nice to be completely disconnected from the world for a Off little bit. Off the grid. Off, Off the, the grid. grid, yeah. So beautiful, beautiful, beautiful trip. Then I came back, and the following week they didn't use me for my four days of availability, and uh, gave me plenty of time to prepare for the in-laws to come in town. We just uh, had a fantastic weekend this past weekend between um, 
and when when you were going on on air, we were at the zoo, not the zoo called uh, Acme or or APG, but the zoo with animals. Got to see uh, plenty at the Atlanta Zoo, and got to see plenty of animals, and that's why that's I missed where my the show. oldest daughter works. Really? Yeah, I did not know that. Well, yeah. you tell your oldest daughter we had a fantastic time there, and it was beautiful, uh, a beautiful zoo day, and uh, got to see the elephants and got to see the gorillas and. Um, the pandas were, I got to see all three of the pandas that were available and they were so cute, so cute. So, uh, the zoo was, uh, one day, then, um, we uh, celebrated my, all right, I'm getting a year closer to retirement. Nick and I, and this makes a lot of sense. We're both Virgos figured that out now. Uh, so my, I celebrated my birthday and went out on the lake on Friday, um, all day. Went for some Japanese food with 14 of my closest friends. And that was Friday after I was recovering from my hangover as I'm eating my dinner. That was kind of fun. And Saturday, we spent a very nice day in the North Georgia Mountains once again at a uh, a wine fest uh, at the Yona uh, Winery, which is a fantastic place. Um, and then Sunday all day out in the boat. So uh, really good uh, couple of weeks. And now I am sitting on short call, have been on short call yesterday and today. Surprisingly, no call as of yet, but three days in a row now because tomorrow they put me on short call as well. So I'm paying back all that uh, luxurious, luxurious time that I had kind of off uh, this month and uh, got to really enjoy the entire month of August and, and here in North Georgia. So you kind of skipped over something. I, I thought you just said something about you're retiring in a year. No, you're you're closer to retirement. Oh, okay. My birthday. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> My birthday. Thank you. You're not really that old. I thought you had a lot more time left at the uh, at the yeah, Acme Air. No, I'm ready to retire. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, we celebrated the birthday on Friday. So okay. Well, happy birthday. Um, a year older, I guess. But now yes. I know that Nick and I are both Virgos. That makes a lot of sense now. You know, when uh, we have uh, federal air marshals uh, on board and uh, we um, uh, and other um, people that are flying with weapons uh, from different governmental agencies, usually uh, they're law enforcement officers and we refer to them as Leos. And so every time the gate agent says to me, uh, we have a Leo in, in seat 19C. And I said, OK, thanks. Tell him I'm a Capricorn. <laughs> and. <laughs> A lot of the times it's like they just look at me like, um, well, thank you for laughing, though. I appreciate that. (laughs) You're going to get a good report. Okay. Um, I have to do a. You're a uh, lot cleaner than what I say. I say I'm I'm a Virgo, the virgin, which is true. The the Virgo is the virgin sign. You're working for the wrong Acme company. You realize that, Dana. You should be working for my Acme company. Well, mm-hmm. that's true. You you do resemble that remark directly, don't you, Nick? Yep. <laughs> anyway. Well, very good. Well, Dana, great to see you. And uh, we missed you. And we're glad that you're here for today's show. Yeah, I, I hope to be able to save for the entire time because right now, let's see, it's uh, three, it's exactly 3.30. So I've got exactly three and a half hours worth of short call left for the day. So I'm hoping that they don't call me. Yeah, we hope that you'll make it. Uh, you'll notice that in the beginning of the show here, we did not introduce Dr. Steph. And uh, it's not because she's not available. It's because her voice is not available today. She's having some issues with that. But we told her when she does get home to go ahead and join us anyway. And maybe she'll be able to squeak out some 
some funny sounds or something. So we'll see. Or maybe do sign language. Put taco in front of the microphone. That'll work. Oh, her dog is uh, taco. <laughs> or, or as Nick says, taco. <laughs> they, they pronounce things funny over there. Funny like. Anyway. And taco is the cutest one on the shelf, for sure. That's true. And is the smartest. Yes. Yeah. So hopefully we'll get to see taco, too. Okay. Uh, Nick. Yes, sir. Last and certainly least. Um, what, what have you been up to? <laughs> Well, because uh, I'm such a relaxed old gentleman and don't do a great deal of flying anymore, uh, I haven't done a trip. I have just been having putting my feet up, which actually has caused me a little bit of pain. I think I've I've got a problem with my Achilles again in my left ankle. That's terrible, isn't it? Um, I was uh, um, bowling this weekend, and uh, I have to report that I am now the uh, Chichester. Um, Priory Park Bowling Club champion of 2018. So uh, that was a good weekend for me. But more importantly, had a lovely. Wait a minute, wait a minute. We got to do the cheering. What about the applause? Yay. Way to go. Uh, and there's the, uh, there's the walrus or whatever yeah, that is. Seal hands, hands backwards for seal <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, uh, are you awake? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, more importantly, uh, a great old uh, mate of mine uh, off the F-18s in Australia, uh, Roey, he flew in flew in, in uh, Acme Kangaroo. Um, he's just uh, converting onto the uh, beautiful A380. And so he was on a London trip and said, uh, got to come and see you. And uh, so uh, he popped down. Uh, lovely guy. We've known each other for, oh, good on 30 years now. So uh, brilliant to see him. And he remembered the magic ingredient uh, for a good life, which is a beautiful Australian port called Galway Pipe. And he bought me two bottles. So we uh, we drank most of one, but I still have one left on the cupboard over there, which is going to be Oh, let's share that when I'm back. Special uh, occasions. <laughs> well, if you port. come, it'll be a special occasion, I guess. So. But, um, <laughs> I guess. so that's been my week. It's been very relaxed. And uh, pardon me, um, not much happening until I head off to Dubai on uh, Monday. So, you know, nice weekend at home. All right. And we should mention that uh, you have a trip uh, next month. Um, you're going to be in Atlanta. Uh, most certainly. Yeah. We're uh, uh, this, uh, assuming that I pass my uh, uh, assessment of competency, uh, which is my Dubai trip, I'm heading off to uh, Washington. And I think I'm going to catch up with uh, Richard in Washington, all being well. And um, then. The next trip is in Atlanta, and I'll be landing on the 14th, Friday the 14th, and I'm hoping we can get together with any uh, APG listeners, uh, preferably somewhere not too far from the hotel. I mean, obviously, we can we can move out if we need to, but uh, it's just that I'll be, I'll be fading fast. So at, at some point in the evening, I'm probably going to have to make a quick exit or fall asleep in my beer. I think we should probably try to make it uh, somewhere downtown. That'd be nice and convenient for you. That would be great fun. That would be good. So if there is anyone uh, available, keep Friday evening free. Uh, I land at about uh, 3.30ish, I guess. So six o'clock in the evening will probably be a good start time. And we'll find somewhere that's not too expensive downtown where we can get together and have a few beers. I'll try and drag a few of the crew down if they're up for a drink. 
And um, you can see some of the Acme Red ladies and uh, possibly gentlemen. And uh, you and I, Jeff, can go hide in the corner and talk airplanes. All right. Sounds like a plan. And and Dana as well, if you're going to be around. Dana, yeah, if you're kicking around. Yes, I've uh, the hog down. I have I, because you're coming over. I've adjusted my schedule a little bit, so yes, I will be here. Oh, what a gent! Brilliant, thanks. Smiles, yay! So, speaking of meetups, we talked about the Sarasota meetup, the upcoming meetup in uh, Atlanta on the 14th, and um, there is a a really important meetup uh, that we just kind of uh, finalized plans for very, very recently. In fact, I just received a an updated uh, email from the lady who is kind of organizing the thing, and this uh, and we've talked about it on a few previous episodes, and we weren't sure we were going to be able to do it or not. We weren't sure of what our schedule was going to be like, but on the 4th of September, we're we're going to have a Flight 93 Memorial Meetup in Shanksville, Pennsylvania. Flight 93 was, of course, the uh, United flight that uh, was one of the four that were hijacked, or three. One, two, three, four. Four. And um, they uh, have a, a very nice uh, park and a memorial. And uh, so uh, I'm uh, in uh, at Dulles for a layover on the 4th, and Richard Fairbairn is going to pick me up. We're going to drive over to his local airport where he has access to a general aviation plane. We're going to fly. Well, you know, hopefully the weather is going to be good from there to uh, Shanksville. And uh, we're going to meet up with uh, Miss Rebecca Saylor. And let me see, let me read her um, email that we just received like an hour ago. Um, she said, I just got off the phone with uh, Ranger John, who has been so helpful. I'm sorry, Robert. Thank you, Liz, my producer. She says, who are you talking about? Richard. It's Robert Fairbairn. Richard is Robert's brother, and I just really shouldn't talk about him. So, sorry. Sorry, Robert. <laughs> anyway, so uh, she says, here's what uh, the community might need to know. Uh, a ranger is going to meet us near the outdoor map around 3.30, again, this is at the Flight 93 Memorial, and spent about half an hour with us as an overall orientation and a Q&A. And then he will leave us to ourselves to uh, tour the site at our own pace. And then our guide, uh, a different ranger, not uh, Ranger John, but John's hand-selected tour guide, uh, who is an aviator himself, um, will be taking us around the uh, the memorial and uh, that ranger said that he's looking forward to our visit and we are too and then uh, rebecca or becky as she uh, says in this uh, email plans to be there much earlier than captain jeff's and robert's uh, arrival via aircraft uh, to touch base with the rangers and any apg or who might also want to arrive earlier uh, please feel free to reach out to becky via email or phone and, you know, probably the best thing to do if you're planning on going, uh, if you don't mind, uh, listen to Hillel at the end of the show, and he'll tell you how you can join the Slack team, the APG Slack team. And there we uh, have some good communications. We'll have telephone numbers for Becky and uh, email addresses and such. And if it's okay with her, I'll find out to be sure uh, before I put them in the show notes. Uh, that'll hopefully be there as well. So if you're planning, if you're in the area or you plan to make the drive or the flight, to uh, Shanksville for the Flight 93 Memorial get-together on the 4th. Uh, look for that. 
And she says, uh, I can be of any assistance to other APGers planning it to attend. So she, Becky's going to pick us up from the, uh, I forgot what the name of the airport is, but it's the closest GA airport from the Flight 93 Memorial. And uh, we're going to, uh, I, I, you know, we'll have a good time, although it's kind of a, you know, it, it's one of those things where it's not a super party, you know, feeling because you're going to be reliving that whole event of september 11th 2001 and uh it was it was a big tragedy but uh, uh i'm looking forward to meeting up with people and sharing that experience and we'll have our recorders going and we'll have something to share on uh the the following show hopefully anything to add um dana or nick and i think i saw some communications going on when i was talking um perhaps liz is trying to tell me something else no. no, no, not reference that. No, okay. I just, uh, I just got uh, Robert's uh, name wrong. Got the R right, which isn't oh, bad you said for Richard my too. age. But, That's uh, why I did it. It was your fault. There you go. Oh yeah, yeah, well, yeah all my fault. I, I got big shoulders. I, I can cope with that. You got what? Big, big what? Shoulders. <laughs> oh, shoulders. Okay. He's just an old Sorry. fat. Misunderstood. <laughs> Okay, so uh, yeah, look forward to uh, meeting up with Becky and uh, Robert Fairbairn and others uh, for that uh, Flight 93 Memorial meetup on the 4th of September. Uh, I mentioned in the last show, I'm going to later in the month, I'll be in Columbus for a very short meetup on the 19th and St. Louis the next day. We'll have a bigger uh, meetup or longer, perhaps sometime during the day, hopefully. And um Let's see. Oh, I'll be I was asked to uh, host or be a co-host on the uh, Plain Talking UK show on this Friday. Uh, so uh, if you want to if you don't already uh, watch and listen to the PT UK, you should because it's a great show. And uh, I'm honored that Matt Smith and Neville Bounds has asked me to join them for this week's recording. And that should be on Friday um, sometime in the afternoon around two o'clock. Eastern Daylight, I believe. So that's all I have written down on my. Oh, no, I have one more. Oh, I have a couple more things, actually. Those are the meetups. Um, Tiffany, one of our eight really cool APG uh, community members, uh, she's a librarian and a, and a professor at a university in Buffalo. Um, and she has put together an aviation reading list. And she has just finished up that task, and uh, we're going to somehow figure out how to put that on the website. And so uh, when that happens, I'll let you know. But uh, it's a great resource for uh, books about aviation that you might want to check out. And the last thing, uh, Peter Biondi, or Biondi, I'm not sure how to pronounce his last name, but Peter, he sent an um, feedback before and uh from the at the end of my last trip we were walking or i was walking uh through the b concourse heading toward the train the plane train and uh, this guy comes up to me and, and goes captain jeff and i went oh hi and uh, he was wearing a a lanyard with a airport badge thing and it said uh and his, his name tag said um uh, Atlanta airport chaplain. And he said, Hey, this is Peter. And, and, uh, he said, one of the things he does, one of many things apparently is, uh, he's a volunteer chaplain at the Atlanta international airport. And, um, he speaks like five languages, one of which is, uh, Portuguese. And, uh, he knows, uh, some, uh, some, some folks, um, in Brazil and, um, one of which um, uh, just recently interviewed me on his video podcast, and 
So uh, I'll put that information in the uh, show notes so you can listen. And it's I didn't do it in Portuguese because I can't speak Portuguese. I can barely speak English, actually. But uh, it's all in English. And uh, it was just but, you know, if you've if you've been around me for any time at all, you'll it's the same stuff you've heard over and over and over again. So it's probably not going to be that interesting. But if one of those five languages is Latin, that's cheating. Nope. Portuguese, Spanish, French, English and Pig Latin, I think. No, that's not right. I, I can speak Pig Latin. Uh, I forgot what the fifth one was, but he says, I thought he said he speaks Swahili? five languages. Swahili? No, I don't know. Yeah, don't. Um, <laughs> I'm not sure how to, how to, how to do that. Um, anyway, he we, we had a great time, talked for, for a bit before I finally caught the train to go home. And uh, Peter, if you're listening, uh, I really enjoyed meeting you again and or meeting you for the first time and seeing you. And uh, I'm glad now I have a resource at uh, the Atlanta International Airport. He talk, to, told me some really interesting things about talking with he's available to talk with crew members and that kind of thing. And, you know, talked to me about some pretty serious things. I'm thinking, well, it's a it's a wonderful job that he does. One of the things he does is he walks around and he helps people uh, out, you know, getting to their gates, people that don't speak English, etc. And um, he gave me something. It's a piece of paper I'm holding. See, you can tell it's a real piece of paper. And uh, he said, this is a true story that happened. And I got permission from Peter to read this on today's show. And I thought it was worth reading. Uh, this is a true story that happened to me three years ago. On the weekends, I'm a volunteer chaplain at the Atlanta airport. Most of the time, I walk around the terminals helping people in trouble. Some are lost. Some do not speak English. Some have uh, a little or some have little experience with airports, and some are just sad or frustrated. One day, I was standing in the lobby and saw a Japanese person approach me. He came from the side, did not see my badge, did not know who I was. He stood beside me and said, please help no English, Portuguese only. I'm actually fluent in Portuguese, and he had no clue who I was. I replied in Portuguese, and he was looking at me amazed. I asked him how he knew I spoke Portuguese. He said he did not. He said he had arrived the night before from Japan and had lost the connection to Brazil. He was a Brazilian Japanese who moved to Japan for work. He said he was from a poor family, and that was just the second time that he was traveling by plane in his life. He was wearing a surgical mask and said that he had cancer and was traveling to Brazil to have surgery. The airline sent him to the hotel the night before. The hotel shuttle had left him at the airport that morning to go to New York and there, and from there take a flight to Brazil. He said that he had been walking around the airport discouraged and afraid because he did not speak English and was not sure what to do. He said that I was the only person he had courage to, to approach and ask for help. He could not believe that I spoke Portuguese and knew exactly how to help him. I took him to the check-in counter to get his boarding pass and check about his luggage. I took him all the way to the gate, wrote him two notes in English to give to the airline agents in New York to help him with his connection. When he was about to board and say goodbye, he said something that almost made me cry. He said that there are days that looks like God forgot about you. He had cancer, missed his flight, and everything was going wrong. However, what are the chances to walk into a big airport and find someone like me? He said that it was a sign that God was taking care of him, and he was sure his surgery would be a success. He said that God sent him an angel. Some days we think that God has forgotten us, looks like everything is going wrong, and we feel discouraged. But if we walk a few more steps, we may find an angel waiting there. He may look different from what we think or imagine with different clothes, no wings, but they're there just a few more steps ahead. Uh, 
There are also times that we can be that angel for someone. We just need to make ourselves available. We always seek a miracle for us, but sometimes we can be a miracle for someone else. As Leo Bascoglia says, A perfect day is not a day that things go my way, but a day when I can make life better for someone else. God bless you. Peter Biondi. So I thought that was great. I thought I want to read that on our show. And uh, thank you, Peter, for giving that to me and giving me permission to read it. Yeah. Very uplifting. Very much so. Uh, Buscalia. 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 That's uh, our main man, Micah, in the chat room helping us out with the pronunciation. Thank you, sir. By the way, uh, this chat room is like 25, 30 seconds behind what we're doing live, which is kind of a pain sometimes because that would have come in handy if he had, because I'm sure he typed that right away to help me out. But by the time we saw it, it was too late. Thanks anyway, main man, Micah. We do appreciate it. Okay. Um, With that, anything else to say uh, before we move on to the coffee fund? Let it roll. All right. Here we go. Here we go. This is where you have to sing with me. Love coffee. I love tea. I love the APG community. Coffee and tea and the Java and me. A cup, a cup, a cup, a cup, a cup. Oh, yeah. All right. Well, the Jeff Smith plays and sings in the background. We're going to talk about the Coffee Fund, which is, of course, your way to support the show financially. If you have the financial resources to do so. If you're someone who uh, needs to spend your money on uh, the roof over your head and clothes and food and most importantly flying lessons, please do not send us any money because you need to spend it on, you know, it's priorities, right? But anyway, if you have some extra shekels or coins in your pocket and you want to throw them our way, just don't throw them too hard, please. Uh, check out the Coffee Fund and become part of our Coffee Fund cadre. And since the last show, using the classic fund method, we have Tony Stubbings. And again, that's via PayPal. You can make a one-time donation or a recurring donation. And uh, the other way to become part of our Coffee Fund cadre is to uh, become a patron of the show via patreon.com. And uh, since the last show, well, we don't have any new patrons uh, since the last show. And that's okay. Um, hopefully next time. But uh, if not, we do appreciate the ongoing support of our patrons, which are very numerous. And we do appreciate your contributions. So if you want to uh, learn more about the Coffee Fund, head over to AirlinePilotGuy.com slash coffee. You'll be glad you did. And now it's time for the news. Stand by for news. All right, let's start with uh, item C, which is uh, something that just happened recently. Uh, Capital Airlines Flight 5759 damaged uh, their nose wheel, nose gear, actually nose wheels, uh, while landing uh, attempt at Macau. Macau? How do you pronounce that? Macau? Probably. 
Macau. Yeah, uh, that's right, to... Jeff. It's uh, that little place uh, run an ex sort of Portuguese colony near Hong Kong, Macau. Oh, okay. They have like a lot of uh, casinos and that kind of thing in Macau. Oh, yes. It's, uh, it's not I think bit, I've heard of that. It's a bit like uh, mini Las Vegas. Well, actually, now it's a bit like a very big Las Vegas. Chinese love gambling. Oh, okay. Well, uh, they probably don't love flying in an airplane uh, that is trying to land at Macau, an Airbus, uh, I believe it is a 320. Uh, yep, an A320 yeah. registration number B6952. And they were attempting to land at Macau and apparently encountered a wind shear, according to this report. And uh, they ended up uh, hitting the runway very hard. In fact, so hard that uh, the two nose wheel tires that are normally there, we're looking at a picture here of the nose gear strut uh, that has no tires associated with it anymore. Well, Part of the nose gear. Anything. <laughs> yeah, it's not pretty bad. <laughs> And apparently one of the engines, uh, at least, uh, ended up getting ingested into the left engine uh, during the landing attempt. And there's a picture of that. And it is uh, a mess. Um, not sure if it ended up uh, shutting down or not. It's very little information in this report. There might be more information in the incident of the incident in the Aviation Herald. I don't have that available to me right at this moment. But um, anyway, it diverted to Shenzhen, where it landed safely. Uh, one of the airport's two runways was shut after shut down after the emergency landing. The un- other runway was operating normally, and five passengers were slightly injured, according to this report. What do you think about that, Nick? Have you ever had a hard landing like that? Well, no, not that amount of damage. Uh, luckily, I've been fairly fortunate in my career, but uh, it certainly looks like it whacked it on uh, a fair amount. And it's a bit odd because uh, normally, if you get sucking into a bit of a hard landing the main gear go down i'm a bit surprised that the nose gear because it's normally the main gear when you uh and particularly since the natural uh, instinct is to just tweak it back a little bit try and cushion that that rate of ascent the nose is usually fairly high uh so why they ended up bonging the nose wheel on i'm not sure um Captain Al's an expert on the 320, but uh, I got the impression that Lisa might have uh, had an Airbus product in her history. That's injury. right. She so uh, did fly she's with... the one to tell us uh, how this might happen. I really have no idea because I've never had a hard landing. <laughs> but <laughs> Every landing that she's done with me on this trip has been hard. No, I'm just kidding. She's never had a hard landing. Yeah, we None of us. Her nose is getting big. Uh, is there any I, uh, flap setting that you might be using in windshield conditions that might uh, have the airplane a bit more nose down? Is there any possibility that you could land nose wheel first? I really can't think of a situation where you would land nose wheel first, except in extreme wind situation that you were out of control or not in the best control. Yeah, yeah. So, so I'm looking at the uh, Aviation Herald, which I should have done to begin with. I don't know why we use that particular uh, uh, news item. Um, but here, this is more information from Simon at the uh, Aviation Herald. Uh, they were on final approach to Macau's runway 34 and into the flare already when the aircraft encountered wind shear and touched down hard. So maybe it just changed the attitude of the airplane and it just ended up hitting the nose wheel first. 
they uh, initiated a go around, received indications of left engine, which is a CFM 56 failure, and suspecting gear damage, declared a mayday. The aircraft diverted to Shenzhen. Is that right? Shenzhen. Shenzhen. Uh, yeah. Now, okay. that, that's, that is, it's not a long way away, but it's a lot further than Macau is because that's underneath them. So I'm just going, were conditions so severe at Macau that they couldn't make a second approach? Because for me, that would have been the prime option. Um, yeah. But, uh, you know, you've just got to. Uh, say, well, perhaps Macau decided that they clo- were closing the airport or something. But if you've declared a serious enough emergency, I don't care if they say the airport's closed, I'm going to land there. Um, uh, particularly with what we can see now was quite severe engine damage to drag that up all the way over to Shenzhen is, you know, uh, an interesting decision. Yeah, but there's no way he'd have, or unless they had some indication in the flight deck that that engine was severely damaged, they wouldn't have known it. Well, I'm hoping the vibration indicators would be going bananas, um, Dana, because you look at the damage to the front end there. I'm going, well, you know, the M1 compressor uh, vibration should have been almost off the clock, I would have thought, with that. But, you know, you never know. It it might have been disabled by the damage or whatever, or they might have decided to shut it down and go single engine to Shenzhen. But interesting. I'd love to, well, I'm sure we will get to see some form of um, accident report in due course, and uh, perhaps yes. we can review it then, but not, an, not a, an easy situation for the crew to deal with, because uh, badly damaged airplane. I'm interested to know if they raise the gear afterwards, because that's something else. You, If you if you go around and you smack the gear on and you fear you've damaged it, it's the last thing you want to do is to raise the gear. And normally at landing, 320 hasn't got a heap of gas unless he's tankering fuel. Um, w- with the gear down, uh, that's a really hard decision to go all the way to Shenzhen. So if he raised the gear, he was one, lucky he got it up, two, lucky he got it down uh, uh, afterwards. And uh, so I'm just questioning a few decisions. I'd love to have more information so I could make a properly charged approach. I found some more for you. Good. Please go ahead. Listen to this paragraph. On August 29th, 2018, the Aviation Herald received information from a multitude of sources stating that the aircraft touched down on Macau's runway 34 at 7.7 degrees nose up, 123 knots indicated airspeed, and 2.4 Gs bounced, touched down a second time at 15.1 degrees nose up between 133 and 144 knots indicated and 3.4 Gs. The aircraft bounced again, touched down a third time, 7.7 degrees nose down, nose gear first, both wheels and part of the nose gear structure separated. Debris was ingested by the left engine. Debris destroyed the VHF-1 antenna, causing temporary loss of communication. The damage to the nose gear also prompted the nose gear to permanently indicate being on the ground, preventing gear retraction. So the the, gear, the uh, ground air uh, logic was uh, inhibited. So uh, the airplane was permanently in ground mode, so they could not retract their gear. About five seconds after the third bounce, the go-around was initiated. <laughs> I'd say it was a little bit too late. Wow, man. Yeah. <laughs> I don't mean to be laughing about it because it's not a really funny situation, but oh my gosh. Sounds like one bounce too late. Yeah. Yeah, I quite agree, Lisa. Wow. Uh, and then okay. they diverted. That diverted. Well, for heaven's sake, come on, guys. You can't make <laughs> it any worse. Just just do a circuit, put it back down again. For heaven's sake. That was, yeah. That's, 
Well, I'm pleased they got to Shenzhen because, uh, you know, it, that could have been so much worse. Yes, it could have. Wow. You got to wonder with, you know, with like Lisa's new over with Acme, right? Might be a newbie in training. That's that's the only reason why I bring that up. It might be, uh, you know, somebody who's doing an OE or or a line check or or you know might have been a new hire that was trying to land the airplane. The captain or you know the captain was a new new captain. You know, there's any any multitude of scenarios here that could have caused that in the wind shear. We don't know how bad that wind shear was, whether it affected the performance of the aircraft in in, in such a negative way. You know, maybe they were trying to do a recovery. You know, maybe they contacted the ground in a full recovery and, and bounced and tried to control the airplane and get got slammed down on the ground again. I mean, we we don't know all the details on this, but obviously that's an awful high nose attitude uh, to be touching the ground. So that's what kind of leads me towards maybe they were in, almost in a recovery mood, mode trying to get out of this wind shear, and maybe they were unable to get out of the wind shear and. The wind, yeah, but uh, kind of had the its wind shear recovery is uh, full uh, thrust and full backstick, Dana. So the right, chance of them making that third contact if they were actually doing wind shear recovery is pretty damn remote. Certainly in a, the nose down attitude that that third impact made. No, I, I, they would have powered away as soon as they realized they're in wind shear and they would have got away with it, I thought. You would, you would think so. with the L-1011 in Dallas, that would have happened too. They were full power trying to get out of it and slammed them on the ground. So oh, They're on a microburst though. Um, in that case, right? Well, we—I mean, we don't know if it was a micro. Yeah. You know, they say wind shear might have been a microburst. We don't yeah. see these are the details. We don't know. We don't know all the the full details here. So, oh no, we do. We know everything. Yeah, <laughs> we're looking for fifty percent or better. So, that's right. <laughs> I think Lane brought up a good point with the fifteen degrees nose up. Did you know? Did they strike the tail? Yeah, that's so. a good one. Yeah, I don't remember the exact number on the Airbus, but I remember I was scared to go past ten degrees. That's for sure. Yeah. Well, I'm sure, as Nick said, we'll we'll find out more uh, as we tune into the uh, Aviation Herald. Uh, Simon's always good about uh, preliminary and final reports, so I'm sure we'll find out more about what happened there. Um, we have a couple updates. The first one uh, you'll remember back in 20. I can't believe it was that long ago. Um, October 28th of 2016, at Fort Lauderdale Hollywood International Airport, uh, a FedEx MD10. 10F freighter touched down at the airport. The flight crew reported hearing a bang as the brakes were applied. The airplane yawed to the left as it decelerated and came to a rest on the left side of the runway, followed by a fuel-fed fire on the left wing. The two crew members evacuated the plane with one suffering minor injuries during the egress. The plane was damaged beyond economical repair. Uh, the final resting position, okay, that's the photo there, caption they're showing there. Um, Investigators found that the failure of the left main landing gear was the result of a metal fatigue crack that initiated within the gear. The crack went undetected and gradually progressed until the gear collapsed. The NTSB also said the interval of nine years between scheduled overhauls of the main landing gear, which exceeded Boeing's recommendation of eight years, contributed to the accident. Investigators determined the fatigue crack would likely have been detected during an overhaul. The gear failed eight years and 213 days after its last overhaul. And uh, anyway, so if you want to learn more about that, they have a link here for the 23-page final report. And... Uh, yeah, very interesting. So it was not crew error. In this case, it was uh, fatigue, uh, a part in the left main landing gear, which uh, caused it to finally just give up, break, 
And uh, I think they did a pretty good job of keeping the airplane mostly on the runway. It did slide off a little bit, but uh, uh, yeah. If you're expecting a delivery from FedEx around that time frame and didn't get it, and you live down there in South Florida, that might be why. There you go. Aren't there legal ramifications if you uh, exceed the Boeing, the um, companies, oh, the manufacturers, sorry, third time? I would imagine. Recommendation. There would be. Recommend, yeah. Um, in, yeah, overhaul. Probably if if it had been within the time frame that Boeing designated, then perhaps they'd have some liability as far as helping pay for whatever. Uh, but uh, if you go beyond that recommendation, I would imagine that uh, the company that decided the new interview uh, overhaul interval would be the ones that would have to suck it up themselves. I mean, I'm just guessing. but Yeah, well, that's what I'm, I'm thinking as well. I mean, Boeing would wash their hands of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I guess FedEx will be getting an interview, will they? Probably so. And then finally, this is, you'll remember this happened earlier this year, I think in March, um, the crash uh, in Nepal at the uh, Kathmandu. Was that the one it, where we saw a fixed camera and this guy just appeared stage left and went boom across the runway? Yeah. Yeah, I remember that. And there was some confusion about runway 0220. We had a very long discussion about how that can be confusing. Uh, well, it turns out uh, that they uh, issued the, I think this is the final report. Uh, Nepali uh, investigators say the U.S. Bangla flight uh, 211, um, and the, something about the captain's past behavior should have been a warning sign. Uh, The pilot of the U.S. Bangla plane that crashed at Kathmandu's airport, killing 51 people, appears to have lied to the control tower during the landing procedure and was smoking continuously inside the cockpit during the one-hour flight from Dhaka to Kathmandu. According to details of the official investigation led by the Nepal government, a copy of which was obtained exclusively by this uh, media outlet, The Post, which Post, Kathmandu Post. Uh, Captain Abid Sultan was going through tremendous personal mental stress and anxiety and a series of erroneous decisions on his part led to the crash of Flight 211. Throughout the flight, Sultan was engaged in erratic behavior that marked a departure from his usual character signs that should have immediately raised flags or red flags. Six minutes before the landing time, Sultan had confirmed that the plane's landing gear was down and locked. Gears down, three greens, the pilot said, according to the report, referring to the electrical indicator lights inside the cockpit. However, when co-pilot Pratula Rashid conducted a final landing checklist, the landing gear uh, was not down. Minutes later, the plane carrying 67 passengers and four crew members burst into flames after missing the runway during its second landing attempt. Uh, the majority of the 22 Nepalis killed in the crash were medical students who had come, come home on a two-month leave before their final year results were published. Only 20 passengers survived the crash. Investigators say that the captain had been smoking cigarettes frequently during the hour-long flight. The former Bangladeshi Air Force pilot who had clocked more than 5,500 flying hours had not disclosed to the airlines that he was a smoker leading investigators to, to conclude that Sultan was undergoing severe mental stress inside the cockpit. When we analyzed the conversation on the cockpit voice recorder, it was clear to us that the captain was harboring severe mental stress. He also seemed to be fatigued and tired due to a lack of sleep, investigators wrote in the report. He was crying on several occasions. That's a big red flag right there. That's a red flag. You're flying with somebody and they're crying. And chain smoking. And, yeah. 
The voice recorder uh, captured nearly an hour-long conversation between the captain and his co-pilot in the cockpit, further demonstrating Sultan's tensed mood throughout the flight and a complete lack of situational awareness. awareness. And this is a quote from the captain. I don't effing care about safe flight. You F your duty. <laughs> well, that's not good. <laughs> and he said at one point inside the cockpit, uh, let's see, it was, no, that's what he said inside the cockpit. It was not clear whom the pilot was directing the statement at, as the co-pilot was the only crew member present inside the cockpit during the flight. The report also shows that Sultan made multiple abusive statements toward a female colleague, another co-pilot in the company, who had questioned his reputation as an instructor, and the relationship was a major topic of discussion throughout the flight. Records show that Rashid, the co-pilot, was a passive listener to Sultan's story throughout the flight. Um, let's see, it goes on further down here in this article. Um, at one point during the flight, according to the details from the audio recorder, the pilot broke down and said that he was very upset and hurt by the behavior of this female colleague and that she was the only reason he was leaving the company. The captain had expressed his desire to resign a day before the accident, the report says, although he had not submitted any written documents. He said he wished to continue on the job for three more months to complete training the co-pilots. He uh, joined this airline, U.S. Bangla, in 2015, and prior to flying commercial flights, he had served in the Bangladesh Air Force and, according to reports, had a history of depression. While in the Bangladesh Air Force back in 1993, he had been removed from active duty after a psychiatric assessment, but he was reevaluated by a psychiatrist back on January 9th, 2002, and had been declared fit for flying. Um, the report said that uh, his detailed medical history was not reviewed by the U.S. Bangla Airlines when he was hired. So I guess they didn't know that he had this history. Uh, he did not exhibit any recurring mental issues during the medical examinations from 2002 uh, until 2018. So we have a person that seems very troubled. Um, and uh, there, there's more details about exactly what happened here. You know, we, we had uh, talked about the fact that we thought there that he was uh, confused about his situational awareness. And uh, so this section of the article talks about that. Uh, at 2 p.m., the airport control tower instructed the flight to reduce its speed and descend to 12,500 feet. The control tower cleared uh, the flight to approach the 02 runway. When the crew did not follow the control tower's instructions, the approach controller asked the pilots why they were not holding over this holding point. At this time, based on the cockpit voice recording, recordings, Sultan responded, holding will not be required in this case. <laughs> <laughs> and then he, I'm going to remember yeah, that one. I must yes. try that with Heathrow the next time. <laughs> was, uh, holding, holding, the holding pattern. Think, think about that one in uh, in New York we just covered with that air traffic control. That really would have went over well. Yeah, <laughs> holding yeah. will not be required in this case. <laughs> exactly. At the uh, let's see. At this time, the aircraft had lost its use of the plane's auto flight guidance system control. Not sure exactly what aspect of that, if the entire auto flight system was not working or whatever. Strong westerly winds blowing at an average of 28 knots pushed the aircraft to the east, which would, in this case, I think would have pushed it toward the runway. The tower informed the crew that they were cleared to land via the 02 side of the runway, but instead the aircraft seemed to be headed for 20, the other side. The uh, report said at this stage there was a complete loss of situational awareness on part of the flight crew. 
That's when another uh, supervisor controller from the airport tower took over the microphone and cleared the flight to land via 2-0, assuming that it was the crew's intention to land from that side. The aircraft, however, was struggling to locate the runway and continued to fly to the northeast. When the aircraft descended to around 175 feet above ground level, a ground proximity warning system alarm went off. Remember, there's a very a lot of high terrain in that area. The tower immediately asked the flight crew about their intention. The captain radioed his intention to land on runway 02. Then air traffic control, while also handling the aircraft, the landing of another aircraft, a Buddha Air that was approaching from 02, cleared flight 211 to land on 02. The information was relayed to the other flight to caution them that there was traffic ahead of them. The aircraft then started to gain altitude. At this point, according to the report, the captain admitted to his co-pilot that he had made a mistake. Local pilots who had been monitoring the development on the radar at the airport premises raised concerns with the tower that the U.S. Bangla pilots appeared to be disoriented and lost. The tower then issued a landing clearance to the flight for either 02 or 20. The CVR revealed that both pilots made several statements that reflected that they had completely lost their orientation of the runway, but the issue was not communicated to air traffic controllers. So I guess the cockpit voice recorder recorded their confusion, but they didn't, you know, let anybody outside the airplane know. A few seconds later, the co-pilot reported sighting the runway. The captain, however, still appeared confused. Despite the runway in sight, the co-pilot made no call-outs to discontinue the maneuver. Alarmed, the control tower hastily hastily uh, canceled the landing clearance by saying takeoff clearance canceled uh, <laughs> what did that say? Mistake. takeoff clearance canceled um the ground a lot of stress going yeah on. no kidding the ground proximity warning alarm sounded continuously in the cockpit while the aircraft flew as low as 45 feet right over the domestic terminal building Nepali airline officials at the time had expressed horror watching the plane fly so close to the tower and had praised the pilot for skillfully avoiding hitting the tower and at least <laughs> half a dozen fueled planes parked at the International Airport's parking bay. Yes. What a great skilled pilot yeah, there. Very skilled. Uh, uh, airport officials uh, at the control tower had described the scene that afternoon before the crash as something like a war film, uh, a complete suicidal attempt that nearly blew the tower. The aircraft finally touched down on the ground with only its right landing gear hitting the runway and skidded to crash through the airport's periphery before coming to a halt onto a nearby field. The impact started a fire within six seconds because the aircraft had 2,800 kilograms of fuel on board. The investigation commission said that because the crash had a low impact, passengers had high chances of survival, but the rapidly spreading post-crash fire prevented passengers from escaping. Wow, what a tragedy. And what... Yeah, what do you say about this? This is crazy. Well, sitting in my mind primarily is that there was only one pilot on that flight deck who was truly uh, having a nightmare, and that was the captain. So the first officer, I mean, it's an awfully difficult position because I suspect there's a lot of hierarchical um, pressure on the first officer. Uh, there are a lot of countries there where the captain is the ultimate authority and the first officer doesn't really um, get much of a say in what goes on. But this That's was the way it is here in the U.S., by the way. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Just kidding. Yeah. But, I mean, this was a, a classic example of when the first officer should have just said, uh, you know, you take the back seat now. Uh, I think you've, you're ha having a bit of a bad day. Uh, let me just finish this off and we'll, we'll land safely and talk about it on the ground. 
Yeah. Or in, in yeah. Dana's case, take out his baseball bat and whack the captain over the head with it. <laughs> oh, I don't need a baseball bat. I just say, I'll knock you out and we'll talk about it later. Well, it's, there you go. It's it's very simple. Yeah, I think this this is a situation of CRM not uh, being applied at all. Um, and as you said, is probably uh, uh, the, the uh, just like the Asiana issue that the, that the hierarchy with the captain, uh, the FO just didn't have the will or the ability to step out of his comfort zone and, and put in you know assert his will. So uh, I, th- I agree with you one hundred percent, Nick. I, th- I think that's the tragedy in the whole thing is that the FO was just. Uh, subservient to the captain and the captain just did what he wanted to do and yeah. despite and, the fact the man was in, obviously obviously incredibly distressed and not really in a fit state to be flying the airplane well it doesn't yeah, sound like I, he ever was he sounded like he had some mental problems from the get-go and the fact that they hired him makes you look at the american airlines and their processes of psychological evaluation and appreciate it a little bit more uh, yeah, good point. But I don't suspect they're nearly as strict over there and uh, where they, you know, take whatever pilots they can get. Yeah, it is a sad story. Well, I guess the best thing now to do would be to go on to the second or third best part of the show. <laughs> is that better, Nick? <laughs> You're just gonna have to think of a different adjective. Yeah, I'm gonna have to think of different a different. Um, yeah. What do you More call that? Just, the nicest yeah. part of the show, or the, the most nicest joyous, part of the adventurous, or the most something. Come up with something. Yeah. Stretch that yeah. old wow. Of yours. Wow. All right. Well, let's just do it. Captain, incoming message. Okay, we're going to do this on the last episode. We didn't get around to it because we talked about uh, being loony. And uh, this story is from, or this feedback is from Brian. He says, what can you tell me about Project Loon? I've, I've been seeing them on flight radar and even watched one for two days while it was around Northern California. Do you pilots get any notifications on them? They're up around 60,000 feet, so that shouldn't bother you. Just curious. Yeah, I've never heard anything you know about this as all uh, at all um i guess they have to get up to 67 70 80,000 feet i don't know where they do that if they do that in the middle of the night or whatever where there's no traffic or not but uh loon of course uh, loon llc is an alphabet incorporated which used to be part of mama google but now uh alphabet is the um isn't Alf- alphabet the the mothership of all the companies and Google is like a subsidiary or is it the other way around Is alphabet, the subsidiary anyway, whatever it is, uh, they're working on providing internet access to rural and remote areas. The company well, uses like California. Al- <laughs> the, uh, company uses high altitude balloons placed in the stratosphere at an altitude of about 18 kilometers, 11 miles to create an aerial wireless network with up to 4G LTE speeds. It was named Project Loon since even Google itself found the idea of providing internet access to the remaining 5 billion population unprecedented and loony. Loon began as a research and development project by X, formerly Google X, but was spun out into a separate company in July of 2018. 
The balloons are maneuvered by adjusting their altitude in the stratosphere to float to a wind layer after identifying the wind layer with the desired speed and direction using wind data from the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, the NOAA. Users of the service connect to the balloon network using a special internet antenna attached to their building. The signal travels through the balloon network from balloon to balloon, then to a ground-based station connected to an internet service provider, then onto the global internet. The system aims to bring internet access to remote and rural, rural areas poorly served by existing provisions and to improve communication during natural disasters to affected regions. Key people involved in the project include Rich Duvall, chief technical architect, who is also an expert on wearable technology. And it goes on. Um, the uh, balloons use patch antennas, which are directional antennas, to transmit signals to ground stations or LTE users. Some smartphones with Google SIM cards can use Google Internet services. The whole infrastructure is based on LTE. Uh, the eNode B component, uh, the equivalent of the base station that talks directly to the handsets, is carried in the balloon. It has a picture here of this very futuristic looking translucent balloon and uh, yeah but, but to answer brian's question no i've never heard any notams or any warnings about these balloons or anything and as he mentions they're way up there we're, we're not flying in that stratospheric um range or uh, zone i guess if we had uh, the only ones that would be flying up there well i guess we don't have do we have any probably do but we just don't know what they are uh, when the sr-71 was flying they were flying up there in that area well u2 is based in northern california oh yeah they're, they're up they get up pretty high don't they mm. yeah <laughs> they probably know where the loons are i bet i bet they do and uh and then if we had supersonic transports flying they would be up in that altitude area as well but they, they look fairly frangible so i'm assuming they're a bit like weather balloons they uh you know you can fly into one without hoping to damage your machine too much and the chances of you hitting one using the big sky theory uh, pretty remote. Yeah. I my, think so. My answer to Brian is that I don't get out to Northern California, so I'd never see it. <laughs> there you go. There's there's Dana's answer. <laughs> I mean, the chances are you wouldn't actually probably see it anyway, since, you know, if you're up at 60,000 feet, you're not really going to be staring out the windshield. <laughs> and, yeah. I think I need to be more specific. I wouldn't see any notums because I'm not out that way. That's what I really uh, should have continued uh, my statement and, and finished off of that. Yes, that would be pretty high up to see that little balloon. But it's got to get up there somehow. So I'm wondering maybe you could see it as it was, you know, climbing up. I, I would wonder if it wouldn't be more like uh, if, you know, like when NASA sends up a satellite or something, they just keep the airspace around where they're sending it up clear. That would be my guess. Make it restricted airspace. Yep. Yeah, that's probably what they do. Well, that makes sense. I mean, they're okay. not the only people tootling around up there, because if you remember those solar-powered uh, um, high-endurance uh, aircraft are going to be up there as well, performing a similar function. But, uh, you know, uh, just a, a much bigger piece of kit now, that could possibly cause you some damage. Yeah. All right, well... Hopefully that answered your question, Brian. Uh, we'll move on to James. Uh, James says, I guess James just sent, is this James Balch that sent this? Yes, it is. James Balch. Sure. He's probably there in the chat room with us today. Is he not? I haven't seen him. Oh, okay. Not too bad. 
Anyway, he sent us a link to a story uh, from foxnews.com, the uh, title of which is, well, let me play this first. Woman kicked off American Airlines flight because of cello. A passenger says she was removed from American Airlines flight before takeoff because the size of her cello, even though she purchased a seat for the instrument. A passenger on board an American... Oh, that was probably the caption to the uh, photo (laughs) that I deleted from this article. She was removed before takeoff before because of the size of her cello, even though she had purchased a seat for the instrument and claims American Airlines assured her husband she would be able to bring it on board. Are we talking a very large dessert here? A jello? No, not a jello, a cello. Uh, okay, sorry. C-E-L. My, my apologies. See, do carry Do you hear on. the music in the background? That's not jello music. That's <laughs> oh, cello oh, is it music. Not? Oh, oh, okay. <laughs> anyway, she said, I purchased two round-trip tickets for herself and the cello. On the phone directly from American Airlines, told them specifically that one ticket is for the cello as cabin baggage. I was told it is absolutely allowed and she won't have any problem, according to her husband, writing on Facebook. Hugh, a music student at DePaul University School of Music in Chicago, had flown to Miami to perform in a music festival. When I flew from Chicago to Miami, I didn't have any trouble with that. Hugh told WMAQ. The flight crew even gave her a special strap to hold the instrument in place. Oh, didn't know they had special straps for that. All right. Yeah, well, that's American Airlines. They have all kinds of special stuff. Uh, the pricey instrument, which who says is worth $30,000, made it safely to Miami with her. However, when she boarded her return flight to Chicago on Thursday, airline crew members asked her to get off the plane. According to Hugh, uh, flight staff told her the cello was too big for the seat, though she insists it met seat size restrictions. Federal regulations allow musicians to carry instruments like cellos in the cabin if passengers purchase a seat for them. And that's what she did. The flight attendants insist she was removed because uh, the aircraft was too small for the instrument. Uh, she writes on Facebook that, or he, I guess her husband writes that uh, he believes she was removed because the flight was overbooked. Interestingly, my wife was traveling with a friend who remained on the plane. She told us that after my wife left, two other passengers came and sat in her and her cello's seats. Hmm. The plot thickens. (laughs) They just kick off passengers when they oversell their tickets using FAA regulations as an excuse. I could have been told those regulations when purchasing the ticket. My My wife could have been told those regulations when flying from, you know, they did. They knew the regulations, and I think that she was complying with them, wasn't she? That's what it sounds like. Yeah. I have a feeling we're probably not getting the whole story here. We're only hearing kind of from their side of the story. Let's see. I think we have some... Uh, a statement from American Airlines. They say a passenger on flight 2457 from Miami to Chicago was traveling with her cello. Unfortunately, there was a miscommunication about whether the cello she was traveling with met the requirements to fit on board the particular airport uh, aircraft she was flying, a Boeing 737. Ah, there's a problem. <laughs> it's hard for passengers to actually fit in the seat of yeah, a Boeing you try 737. Yeah, one into the toilet with you. <laughs> yeah, when I saw that, Jeff, I immediately started thinking those, those overhead uh, bins are pretty low in comparison to the passenger seat. So the cello on the seat may not oh, have, fit. Didn't have the, the height. Yeah. Ah, could be. Um, 
They rebooked the passenger on a flight the next morning on a larger aircraft, a Boeing 767. We provided her a hotel and meal accommodations for the inconvenience. We apologize for the misunderstanding and customer relations has reached out to her. So I, I can now I can understand, you know, if, um, maybe the, there was no problem coming down because it was a larger aircraft. And then in this case, maybe there really was not not room for that cello to actually be put into the seat. Now, if, now if she had booked an aisle seat, maybe it would have been a better scenario, but. Probably yep. had a window seat, and there was no way it was going to be able to fit underneath that uh, that overhead. Uh, well, in that case, surely the crew could have uh, organized that. Yeah, seats around. Or put it in the closet. Yeah. By the way, James is here and alive. He said, "Oh, hey, James. <laughs> Good to see you, man." <laughs> Lurking in the chat room. Uh, having flown with a few, um, I won't say precious because that's completely the wrong way. People who have very valuable uh, instruments and pay for a seat and want them to fly with them, uh, the chance of getting it put in a wardrobe, <laughs> zero. <laughs> yeah. Why is yeah. it so hard to get things put in the wardrobe? Well, because they've uh. just paid for a seat so they can sit beside their beloved Stradivarius and they oh, ain't gotcha. going to have it stuffed in some wardrobe by uh, the cabin crew. Not uh. Uh, all the tea in China. Yep. I. You know, it would be interesting to be a fly on the wall, as they say, and hear the conversation between the passenger and the flight crew. I mean, you know, it, it could have been maybe contentious, perhaps. Attitude may have been not quite right. I don't know. It's really hard to say. Well, particularly since we they're there. trying to kick this lady off her flight. Yeah, I suspect yeah. Tempest did get a bit frayed. May have been slightly contentious before it got to that point, perhaps. I don't know. Well, they had plenty of time to let her know that it wouldn't fit. After all, she checked in for the flight. They must have known what aircraft they were going to put her on. Yeah. Okay. Well, I don't know what else to say about that. No. Do you, Lisa? I don't. Okay. All right. Let's move on then. Stuart sends us some feedback. And let's see. Oh, I guess he... Yes, he does say something here. He said, I was reading this article this morning and laughed. Yet another platform for the world to voice its displeasure. Uh, the, the title of the article is, New App Allows Passengers to Report Uncomfortable Cabin Conditions. And then he puts in uh, here, passenger. Uh, but why is it so hot? Oh, and just look at the app. Everyone feels the same way, Captain. Well, it's 38 degrees Celsius outside, and we're on a short runway, fully loaded, so would you prefer to clear the mountain at the end of the runway for which we need the air conditioning packs off during takeoff, or would you like to be nice and cool as we hit it? Please re record your comments in the app for the crew to review shortly before takeoff. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, that's Stuart being very facetious. Uh, he said, we have the Edmonton Air Show coming up on the 18th, 19th, 20th of August. Oh, what day Oops. is today? Yeah, Oops. Well, we must have gotten this a little while ago. Sorry, Stuart. Uh, the Edmonton Airshow, he's got a uh, link to that. Um, it's not quite Fambra or Oshkosh, but you can. But you take what you can get. Enjoying the show as always here in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. Cheers, Stuart. And so here's the um, article he included uh, a link to in his feedback. Um, a new app released by the Association of Flight Attendants will now allow passengers to report high or low temperatures on board an aircraft. The app, which is available to passengers and crew free of charge, is called, it is, it is a cute name, 2, like the number 2, hot, and the number 2, 
cold, too hot, too cold. <laughs> and as part of an effort to introduce standards for climate control in aircraft cabins, the uh, app can also collect the airline, aircraft type, flight number, date, origin, destination, and phase of flight. The Association of Flight Attendants is hoping that the new app will allow them to collect data in order to support a petition that was filed earlier this month with the U.S. Department of Transportation. The petition that was filed reportedly is pushing for a temperature range of 65 to 75 degrees Fahrenheit within the cabins. Apparently, maybe they're not communicating this with the pilots. <laughs> I guess not. I feel like that's my full-time job is yeah. to keep that cabin between 65 and 75 degrees. I feel bad that yeah, they're can't. feeling we don't do that. Yeah. Well, it sounds like this is just this app is specifically created to give them ammunition for something. But I say maybe they should try communicating with the pilots and saying it's too hot or too cold. I mean, that's what they do at Acme. Exactly. And we try to accommodate them. Especially Sometimes we particular succeed. particular aircraft. Yeah, it's difficult on the uh, Mad Dog. <laughs> bloop, bloop, bloop. Yeah, you'd bloop, like to just think about moving spent. the knob, and, it, <laughs> and then you watch the uh, temperature thing go, <laughs> like, go from 60 degrees to 140 degrees. Exactly. Yeah. It's a challenge. It is. But we can conquer it. Yes. Um, anyway, what do you think about that app, uh, Dana? Um, hmm don't like it at all because everybody's concept of, of what the perfect temperature is, is going to be completely different. If you have a uh, flight going down out of New York down to West Palm beach, I can assure you everybody's going to want a, a touch warmer. Uh, if you get a flight going to Minneapolis uh, in the middle of uh, winter, uh, people probably want a little chillier before they get it off the aircraft because, well, they're used to that cold air. So, uh, you know, I just, <clears throat> I, I just think it's giving people too much ammunition. And for, furthermore, what what really should happen is what? No, I was waving at stuff. Uh, I was like, "What? Huh? I'm sorry. I didn't <laughs> sorry, stuff down there. Hi, Steph. Hi, Steph. You're supposed to, so, uh, Dana, you're supposed to not pay attention to the stuff that's going on here. Just say what you're saying. I know. I know. I know. Sorry. <laughs> so, anyways, yeah, I think it's just uh, it's going to give all these people this this ammunition for situations that really cannot be controlled on the aircraft at the time anyways, other than letting the crew know that the te temperature back there is indeed uh, either too warm or too cold. Just a little little tidbit on, on our aircraft, the Mad Dog, there is only one sensor. It's around row 19 or 20 in the, in the overhead ceiling. Uh, so there's really no way for us to control sections like they can on the uh, fabled Airbus back there, Nick. Uh, they have different you know sections on their overhead they can control forward back and 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 etc etc so it's much more difficult on an aircraft like ours to be able to control the temperature as well and especially uh, during the hot summertime as as we've talked about in the past it's very difficult to keep the aircraft cool on our aircraft anyways so people can can com complain or, or say that my seat here is at you know is is seat 17 bravo is 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 hot and the person behind them will say well it's too darn cold uh so you know it's it's i think it's just opening up a can of worms i agree wear layers doctor doctor hey doctor. Wow, what's going on doctor. here doctor that's doctor. the theme song doctor. the theme music for doctor. the good doctor stuff from her Lakeside home. I'm like Let's see. Halfway afraid to try and talk. Oh this no! Is really bad. <laughs> wow! I better turn down the music because we can't. We can't even hear her. Oh my gosh! Your voice sounds terrible. Strained. <laughs> I think the doctor <laughs> needs to go see a doctor. I, you know, I feel fine. 
I was a little under the weather over the weekend, like just kind of an upper respiratory thing. And I guess this laryngitis is the uh, sequela of that. So yeah, it's not Ooh. real fun. Sequela. I'm not going to, I'm not going to hang out for, for long. Sorry. Well, you can, but you can, you can be there and just sit there and, you know, like, you know, make. No, because I want to, I want to chime in and talk and I really oh, okay. should just. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, I could be uh, uh, Dr. Steph as well. Because I could, I could talk like that. It's not mm, a problem. I, no. I could do that. Let's not do that. Uh, yeah. I mean, the pressure was... of oxygen is... <laughs> <laughs> Don't they have those robotic things that you can type in what you're thinking and have it speak it like for you? Stephen Hawking style? Yeah. I need one of those. Why don't you try that? Huh. Uh, I'm Lisa, sure her Google voice doesn't normally something. sound like this. <laughs> oh, hi, Lisa. Nice to, nice to meet you. Normally, I do not sound like this at all. <laughs> um, yeah, no, it was bad enough that I actually did not go to my regular clinic this morning to work because I can't, I just can't have conversations right now. So, Dr. Steph, this is a family show. I'm going to say it sounds strangely sexy. <laughs> you know what it's funny it's not like it's you know sometimes when you lose your voice a little bit and you get that little like growl to it but this is just painful it's beyond and that. it sounds it's like you need to rest it Steph rather than yeah, I need it yeah. to come back so I'm going to <laughs> yeah. yes quite well, right and Dana Dana I need to all. remind you uh, family show ladies and gentlemen Show. Yes. Um, well, thank you for making that very strained effort, Steph, to yeah. uh, communicate with us. Sorry. So. Yeah, I'm sorry you weren't able to make it. I know. Well, um, I'll jump in after you guys finish the show so we can talk about uh, plans for next week, assuming my okay. voice returns. I need it back Excellent. by tomorrow because I really do need to work. So. Okay. All right. Okay. Keep Good drinking luck. that, uh, what is it, lemon and honey? Lemon and honey. Yeah, I've been doing that. Yeah. It's not doing much of anything for me so far. Then I go for the IPAs next. Yeah, I think I'll just move on to beer. It's better. Yeah, the hops. Sipical. Yeah. I have that too, but my throat's not sore anymore. So damn. Just, just, just punch yourself in the throat and be over with it. Oh man. <laughs> All right. Well, we hope you. Uh, I hope your voice comes back. Cocky. Staphylococcus. Staphylococcus. Yeah. <laughs> Close enough. Oh, so many things we can say there, but we're not. <laughs> Good. Okay. Yeah. Um, so yeah, thanks, oh, Steph. And uh, it's not it's, you don't need to bust out my asthma for that one. So Okay. All right. Excellent. Anyway. All right, we'll see you later. All right. Bye All right. guys. <laughs> well, at least you made the effort. That's nice. Let's see. Shall we move on to item number five? Yes. Okay. I always like a good rat story. Do you? Okay, well, we have one for you. Usually they're dancing around the galley. <laughs> that's true. Uh, at least uh, that's the only time you'd see a rat on our, our airplane would be in the galley. Uh, Sean from Portland, not Maine. So Portland, Oregon, of course. Uh, sent us uh, some feedback. He says, quick question on, on a device I recently heard about for the first time. Apparently, some airliners are equipped with a dangling propeller called a RAT, a Ram Air Turbine, or turbine if you prefer, if you're in the UK or Europe. As a private pilot and av geek. Yeah, a turbine is a thing you wrap. I know, it's the thing they wear on their head. <laughs> Thank you. We've had this conversation before. As a private pilot and av geek, I was surprised that this topic had remained until now completely unknown to me. And unless I've missed it, hasn't been mentioned on the show before. Question mark. I think we've, over the years, I think we have Touched mentioned 
Ram air turbines that before, because I remember took, being corrected. For about 15 hours about one. But, oh, yeah. uh, apart from that, I think, I think we've talked about that too. And that was just one show. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, okay. says, okay, I probably missed it. You all talk about everything. <laughs> At for, and, and, well, never mind. At first, I couldn't reason out why such a device would ever be needed, since I presume most, if not all, of these airliners are also outfitted with APUs, which can generate electricity in flight. But I suppose if one ran out of fuel, then the APU wouldn't offer much help, whereas the RAT can at least power hydraulics, pressurization, and minimal equipment. Any empowering knowledge the crew can drop on this airy subject? Ooh, good one. Rimshot insert. Do any of the big birds you fly have a big, seemingly useless, dangling appendage? And again, that is from Sean, Portland, Oregon. And then he uh, uh, or included here uh, some interesting pictures of a rat in a tweet at the end of this item. And the tweet is from Stephen L. Starkman, at Stephen Starkman. And his tweet is, I smell a rat. An Air Georgian CRJ arriving Toronto runway 23 at 4.44 p.m. Saturday, August 11, 2018. So I uh, have a couple pictures of this uh, CRJ coming in. And there's like a little panel um, on the nose on the right side, lower right side. And the panel door is open and from it is extending. Um, it, it doesn't look like like um like a rodent it looks like um some kind of a fan thing with a yeah, propeller it, on it deep the nose gear cool uh where the hell do they put the radar on that thing they got two landing lights and a damn rat where's the radar scanner it's I mean, a very it very tiny be, little radar it must be the size <laughs> of a dinner plate <laughs> i think you're right doesn't seem to be that it would be that large because there's a lot of stuff up there in that nose. Yeah, F-16 size. Um, so uh, I'm, I'm not sure. I can't recall if um, – I know that 727 didn't have one. I know the Mad Dogs don't. Um, Airbus, yeah, the Airbuses have them. Um, the L-1011 may have had. I don't remember, to be honest. I don't, I don't but, uh, think the L-1011 had the rat on it. I don't think so either. I don't think so. Um, so, Nick, perhaps you can uh, enlighten us yeah, uh, we on got one. the rat. Yeah, we okay, got there one. Okay, there you go. It, it, I mean, it's a clever <laughs> device. If you're an airplane that uh, is like all electrics, you've got 30 minutes worth of uh, battery power if you lose everything, um, which isn't a lot of use if you can't power the flight controls because then you'll just crash with all the pretty instruments glowing at you. Um, so that's not much use. So um, in the case of four-engine failure and various other uh, similar problems where you're going to lose all the hydraulics, uh, uh, a rat pops out of the uh, front of the flap housing on the right-hand side, um, close to the middle, um, and uh, it's a bit like this one. Uh, and it's just, uh, it's it's something for nothing. It's, they're great devices because whilst you're flying, it'll keep spinning. And whilst it's spinning, it'll pump something. Uh, it could power a generator, but in our case, it powers a hydraulic pump. But once the hydraulic uh, system has got pressure on it, then brilliant. You can do all sorts of clever tricks with that. And in our case, we've got an emergency electrical generator that runs from the hydraulic system. So the hydraulic system powers the generator, which backs up the batteries and gives us uh, uh, AC-DC power. And um, so now we've got 
hydraulics and electrics run from that clever little propeller stuck out in the slipstream. So uh, they automatically deploy, deploy in the event of certain emergency situations. Uh, they're kind of once only, so they're just a spring, bangs them out of the flat into the slipstream, and then you can't really retract them, no point. Uh, and uh, they wear away. And they'll run uh, throughout the entire you know, sort of sp- speed regime down to about 140 knots when they start to lose power. So you can put the airplane down. I'm talking about A340-600 here. So you can put the airplane down on the runway, and then it'll start to peter out as you slow down uh, on the runway. Um, and uh, it's it's a get-you-home device, so that's what they're for, really. Uh, if you recover the situation, so you've, uh, you've, you've lost some engines or lost all your engines, and the rat comes out, keeps you flying while you relight something, when you get the engines back, uh, which is really kind of what it's designed as. It's designed to give you that temporary control of the aircraft while you fix whatever the problem is. Um, then it's going to be stuck out for landing. You see, it's going to stay out there for a little while. So uh, you just relax and fix everything else and then uh, um, just divert and uh, everyone will go, oh, look, there's a little funny thing. But to be fair, on an airplane the size that I fly, you don't really notice it very much because it's quite small. On a little CRJ like that, it actually looks quite big, doesn't it? Big, All things yawing. Sticking out the front. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. So you, did you say that this was something that in, in the system logic automatically deploys? It's not like you hit a button, rat. Uh, we have both options, so it should okay. automatically deploy. And in those um, drills where it is required to deploy, uh, if it for some reason the automatics haven't worked, then an extra line will appear on the emergency checklist that will require us to push it out. And there's a little button over under a red uh, guard just over the captain's head, and he just reach up, pushes the button, and out comes the rat. And so that was uh, strictly for hydraulics, and then with the hydraulic pressure, you can run a, an emergency emergency generator. Exactly Is that what you're saying? right. Yes. Okay. Excellent. Very cool. Yeah, um, I mean, most of the older aircraft didn't require necessarily require electrics to really fly them, whereas uh, on the uh, Airbus product, it's it's far more critical. That's essential. I don't know yeah. about the newer generation uh, Boeing, like the Trip Seven or, or the. Uh, 787 or the newer next generation 73s. I, I don't think they had them on the older 73s, but uh, I don't know about the newer. Do you know anything about that, Lisa? I don't know anything about that. Okay. Um, Liz, do you know anything about that? <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, yeah, I would imagine that airliners that are using flyby wire technology like the 787 and future aircraft will probably all be equipped with rats. I'm guessing. I don't know that to be a fact, but anybody in our chat room chiming, chiming in with that information as of yet? No? Okay. No, but Nico is asking what uh, drag penalty. It's tiny. It, it's not a significant drag penalty. And quite honestly, compared with uh, a bunch of dead engines, it's better to have a tiny track penalty. Yeah. <laughs> so right. losing complete control and crashing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. but we what about all that drag? <laughs> that crashing point, is a drag, man. At that point, you're not too worried about going to your destination and whether you're going to run out of fuel getting there. You're, you're just looking for the closest place, piece of concrete to stick it on. Yeah. yeah I mean, you remember that airplane, The uh, I think it was an Airbus 330 or three. 
that uh, Lena and the Azores, when they had ran out three thirty, yeah, three thirty, yeah, yeah, yeah. ran out of fuel, you know, over the ocean. So that was they ran it out of fuel. <laughs> yep. Yeah. So it's uh, it's yeah. a good thing yeah. they had that. Yeah, to be fair, they had a fuel leak, but then they pumped all the fuel into the tank with the fuel leak, which wasn't the cleverest. Yeah, I guess so half of it was a fuel leak and half of it was uh, (laughs) self-imposed, complete fuel starvation. Exactly right. Oopsie. Yeah, but at least the guy that flew the airplane was uh, uh, had some skills. Uh, So a glider pilot. And And he had a good half hour to work out what he was going to tell the company. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, how how could this have possibly happened without it being pilot error? Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Let's get our story straight. I yeah, changed the subject right. at all, but anybody recognize one of these? Yeah, it's, uh, it's an a experience. Yeah, yeah. It's going through some old stuff and I just came across it. <laughs> we use that every single flight on the uh, man dog. How in the world do I use this? <laughs> the Aussies uh, have one that's uh, completely circular. They call it a whiz wheel. Uh, which we, yeah. we used to use a bit, but th- then someone invented a computer. Oh, there you go. There's, is that a whiz wheel? It's not a whiz wheel, but it's how to enter holes. So I need to put that back uh, into my flight case so that I have that. <laughs> just in just case you need to enter a hold one there. <laughs> I don't think you're going to need to use that. Day. <laughs> no? No. You're flying with me. Oh, okay. Well, not anymore. That's true. I miss you. I miss you too. Oh. You've, you found a much better replacement. Right. We're having a moment. Right, Lisa? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> As she chuckles. Definitely oh, not. Okay. Well, anyway, let's move on, shall we? Um, let's see. Item number six. Ah. They've come to vacuum the room. That's our, <laughs> our drone sound effect there. Uh, autonomous drone. This is from Chris, by the way. Autonomous drones can herd birds away from airports which is, wow, that's weird. Drones aren't usually allowed to go near airports unless they serve a purpose, like herding flocks of birds away from airspace where they could put planes full of people in jeopardy. Manually controlled drones can be unreliable, though. If the operator gets too aggressive and spooks the birds, the flock could scatter and become even more unmanageable. That's why a team of researchers from Caltech have developed an algorithm that teaches unmanned aerial vehicles how to autonomously and effectively herd birds away from airport airspace and then the it's a really interesting article um according uh, i think it's based on a study published by the institute of electric electrical and electronics engineers the ieee transactions on robotics uh studied flock dynamics i didn't even know there was such a thing but bird flock dynamics including how birds maintain formations and how they respond to threats along the edges of the flock to develop their mathematical model uh, see, if the birds flying along the edge detect external threats, they make course changes that affect the birds next to them, creating a domino effect. And we've all seen that, a flock of birds and like starlings or whatever, and like the edges kind of move and then the whole thing kind of, you know, moves reflexively like a, the domino effect. And uh, th- oh. they said that, yes? I was going to say, I would just have to say no flocking way. Yes. Yes, flocking way. If you want to watch flock uh, dynamics, you just need to go to a pub when there's a, a hen party and her bride day and watch how they <laughs> Wow. It's amazing how we can turn a study by the IEEE and bird flocking dynamics into uh, some kind of a pub joke. Yeah, but, but it, I, I like it, it though. It's a question. Uh, what would you trust, an AI controlling a drone near an airport or a human operator? A human operator, but apparently human operators 
can't react quickly enough or something. I don't know. Look, read about it in this article that Chris <laughs> so, uh, you know, happily uh, forwarded to us or sent to us. Uh, it is actually interesting, by the way. I, I did learn something, believe it or not. Um, but, of course, if you're me, every every single day you're learning things because you don't remember what happened the day before. Or <laughs> so, the names of people right next to you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This this person next to me. I, I think it's F-O. a good concept. I mean, if if you've got a lot of uh, migrating birds and, like, Canada geese, they're, they're a nightmare. They're big and cause you a lot of damage. And they've got known uh, transit patterns. Uh, certainly through the UK, they do. I don't know about uh, Canada and the States. So it, when you can get a drone that will control them, and they, they're quite disciplined birds, like they fly in formations and they follow one bird at the front there and they change lead, et cetera. So I can just see how it would work there. But if you're just trying to control a bunch of uh, vagrant pigeons that are loitering around the airport, I'm not quite sure how that's going to work. So I, I think in the, in the right situation, it could well be of value, but uh, for the average airport, no, I'm not so sure about that. Yeah, probably not. Well, anyway, it's interesting nonetheless. It is. And speaking of interesting and the best part of the show, bar none, it's time now for the old pilot's plane tale. Oh, do we have to? No, more. Yeah. I'm only kidding. It's fantastic. Okay, buckle up. Here we go. The old pilot's plane tales, the cargo gods. It's a remote place on a remote island in Melanesia, that area of the Pacific Islands to the northeast of Australia. That includes Papua New Guinea and Vanuatu. The terrain is rugged and almost inaccessible except to the indigenous people of the area. They live in an isolated way, in the same way that they have for centuries, akin to the people of the Stone Ages. They've rarely seen someone with white skin. In their warm tropical climate, the Melanesians wear few clothes, but they decorate their bodies with garish paints and leaves, and they wear large necklaces of bones and ornaments, some of which they skewer through their noses. As the sun sets, they gather on a high ridge line, nearly 9,000 feet above the ocean that surrounds the island. Here they have built something that you and I might find strangely familiar. On the top of the ridge, they have carved a long straight strip of flattened earth edged with stakes. At one end is a roofed tower made out of bamboo poles wound together with jungle creeper. A platform is near the top where some men sit looking out over the smooth strip of earth, along the edge of which sit groups of natives who gaze attentively up into the sky. At the other end sits what at first glance is an aircraft. Closer inspection reveals something that is crude but recognisable, There is the shape of a wing atop a fuselage with a tail, but it was never made to take to the air. It's built from branches and covered with leaves, but it's lined up as if to take off. In the fast disappearing light, a fire has been lit, which is passed along to set torches ablaze along the runway and even up in the control tower. 
a little airfield has been created for the cargo planes, for these people worship the machines that pass over them on their way to the big airfield on the edge of the island, where they refuel on their journey between Hong Kong and Australia. They have seen the aircraft land at the big airfield and disgorge prizes of great wealth. They don't understand where they've come from, but believe that they must be from above the clouds where their ancestors live in paradise and that they bring untold riches. Somehow the white men at the airfield have fooled their ancestors into sending the planes to them instead of the villagers, their descendants. So they build their own landing strip in the hope that their ancestors will send some of the metal birds down and shower them with cargo, for these people belong to a cargo cult. The term cargo cult was coined in 1945 by Norris Bird, an old territories resident, who wrote one of the first published analyses of the phenomena after the Second World War. The sudden appearance during the war of soldiers from both sides, first the Japanese and later the Australians and Americans, introduced the unsophisticated natives of the remote islands to a level of technology that was far beyond their wildest imaginations. The pilots who flew the Douglas C-47 Skytrains, the C-54 Skymasters and the Curtis C-46 Commandos would have no idea that their presence in the air over these primitive tribes would have such a profound effect upon them. Up to that point, the only real contact tribesmen had with the Western world was through a few missionaries who tried to prod them into Christianity. The cult got its biggest boost when American troops by the thousands were dispatched to the New Hebrides and other islands where they built large military bases. The bases included hospitals, airstrips, jetties, roads, bridges and corrugated steel quonset huts, many erected with the help of hundreds of local men recruited as labourers. Of course, where the U.S. Armed Forces go, so go the legendary PXs, with their seemingly endless supply of chocolate, cigarettes and Coca-Cola. For men who lived in huts and farmed yams, the Americans' wealth was a revelation. Almost daily, cargo aircraft would land and offload vast amounts of cargo wealth, or drop them haphazardly from the skies on parachutes. The troops paid them 25 cents a day for their work and handed out generous amounts of goodies. The Americans' magnificence dazzled the men, as did the sight of dark-skinned soldiers eating the same food, wearing the same clothes, living in similar huts and tents, and operating the same high-tech equipment as white soldiers. One tribe, under Chief Isaac, believed that a man that they called John Frum appeared to a group of elders and now led them in their belief. This mythical white man led Chief Isaac's tribe and others into a cult of followers. In 1943, the U.S. command, concerned about the movement's growth, sent the USS Echo to Tanner with Major Samuel Patton on board. 
His mission was to convince the John Frum followers that, as his report put it, the American forces had no connection with John Frum. He failed. The villagers believed that their messiah was responsible for sending the generous US military and its cargo to them. At the war's end, the US military unwittingly enhanced the legend of their endless supply of cargo when they bulldozed tons of equipment, trucks, jeeps, aircraft engines, supplies, off the coast of Espiritu Santo. During six decades in the shallows, coral and sand have obscured much of the watery grave of Warsapolis, but people can still see tyres, bulldozers and even full coke bottles. The locals wryly named the place Million Dollar Point. After the war, when the tribesmen returned to their huts, they were convinced that John Frum would soon join them and hacked a primitive airstrip out of the jungle to tempt the expected American planes from the skies. Across the South Pacific, thousands of other cargo cult followers began devising similar plans, even building bamboo control towers strung with rope and bamboo aerials to guide in the planes. In 1964, one cargo cult on New Hanover Island in Papua New Guinea offered the US government $1,000 for Lyndon Johnson to come out and be their paramount chief. But as the years passed with empty skies, almost all the cargo cults disappeared. The devotees' hopes crushed. Chief Isaac was asked, John promised you much cargo more than 60 years ago and none has come, so why do you keep faith with him? Why do you still believe in him? Chief Isaac grinned and replied, You Christians have been waiting 2,000 years for Jesus to return to earth, he said, and you haven't given up hope. The islanders believed that their own dead ancestors continued to influence the communities of the living, and that their ancestors would one day come back to life and distribute to them unimaginable wealth. Therefore they reasoned that the white people must have connections to their own ancestors who would logically be the only ones powerful enough to rain down such wondrous riches. So they set in motion a plan to bring back the cargo. They had surreptitiously learned the secrets of summoning the cargo by observing the practices of the American airmen, sailors and soldiers. The islanders set to work, clearing their own kind of landing strips, and they erected their own control towers strung with rope and bamboo aerials. They carved wooden radio headsets with bamboo antenna, and even the occasional wooden air traffic control tower. Day after day, men from the village sat in their towers, wearing their headsets as others stood on the runways and waved the landing signals, to attract cargo-bringing aeroplanes from the sky. More towers were constructed with tin cans strung on wires to imitate radio stations. The religions introduced by missionaries were completely inconsistent with islanders' long-held beliefs, yet the natives could not deny the call of the cargo. 
the people therefore attempted to reconcile their existing beliefs with the missionaries' teachings, a practice which led to some strange interpretations. In New Guinea, one resulting version of Christianity described a god named Anus, who delivered cargo of canned meat, steel tools, rice and matches to Adam and Eve. When they discovered sex, Annas ejected them from Eden and struck them with a flood. On one island, villagers clothed themselves in homemade U.S. Army breeches, painted USA on their bare chests and backs, and ran a replica of Old Glory up the flagpole alongside the Marine Corps emblem and the state flag of Georgia. Barefoot soldiers then marched in perfect step in the shadow of Yasur, the island's active volcano, with red-tipped bamboo like rifles slung over their shoulders. For a long time, the natives accepted the European mission as the means by which the cargo would eventually be made available to them, but they found that acceptance of Christianity did not bring the cargo any nearer. They grew disillusioned. One leader began to put about that it was not the whites who made the cargo, but the dead ancestors. To people completely ignorant of factory production, this actually made good sense. White men did not work. They merely wrote secret signs on scraps of paper, for which they were given shiploads of goods. On the other hand, the Melanesians laboured week after week for pitiful wages. Plainly, the gods must be made for Melanesians somewhere, perhaps in the land of the dead. The whites who possessed the secret of the cargo were intercepting it and keeping it from the hands of the islanders to whom it was really consigned. In the Madang district of New Guinea, after some 40 years' experience of the missions, the natives went in a body one day with a petition demanding that the cargo secret should now be revealed to them, for they had been very patient. So strong is this belief in the existence of a secret that the cargo cults generally contain some ritual in imitation of the mysterious European customs which are held to be the clue to the white man's extraordinary power over goods and men. The believers sit around tables with bottles of flowers in front of them, dressed in European clothes, waiting for the cargo aircraft to materialise. Europeans who have witnessed outbreaks inspired by the cargo cults are usually at a loss to understand what they behold. The islanders throw away their money, break their most sacred taboos, abandon their gardens and destroy their precious livestock. They indulge in sexual license or alternatively rigidly separate men from women in huge communal establishments. Sometimes they spend days sitting gazing at the horizon for a glimpse of the long-awaited aircraft. Sometimes they dance, pray and sing in mass congregations, becoming possessed and speaking with tongues. Of course, the cargo never comes. The cults, nevertheless, live on. If the cargo does not arrive on schedule, then perhaps there is some failure in the magic, some error in the ritual. New breakaway groups organise around purer faith and ritual. 
the cult rarely disappears, so long as the social situation which brings it into being persists. So, my fellow flyers, be you enjoying a meal in your comfortable seats or driving the thing up front, have a thought for what is going on beneath you. Your very presence in the air may be driving some poor tribesmen into desperate straits as they try to lure you down onto their primitive landing strip so that they can loot you of your cargo that is rightly theirs, gifts from their ancestors. Cargo cult. Interestingly, um, while looking at the chat room, while... The uh, plain tale was playing. Uh, Jim Howard says uh, cargo cargo cult programming is a thing in software development. Also, it means a programmer who relies on cutting and pasting from code he doesn't really understand. That's weird. Yeah, that the term has been coined by uh, various modern um, organizations to describe a similar. Oh, pardon me. Beer speaking. Say it again. (laughs) What was the beer trying to say? It was trying to say, "Go away, leave me alone." (laughs) Stop talking. Yeah. So uh, yeah, uh, I mean, I don't think uh, cargo cults uh, are a a big thing now, but certainly in the seventies and eighties, they were common. I my my father explained because he flew uh, around Australia and uh, up around uh, PNG. in just after the war, when they they were they were growing um, because the uh, all the armed forces that had been populating that area and infusing the islands with all this amazing technology uh, and flying in regularly suddenly disappeared once the war was over. And uh, but the civilian guys that occasionally popped in there began to realize that something was going on. I mean, the the research from this included an awful lot of anthropological Logical um, terminology and theories that I went way over my head concerning this, but I just found it fascinating that um, you know these people were caught up in the um, drama of what was going on and tried to make sense of it in their own way, and um, these strange religions developed. Very, very strange. Very interesting as well, and entertaining as always. Thank you, old pilot. You're welcome. All right, number seven, Jay. Uh, He says, greetings once again from Sydney, Australia. Good day, mate. (laughs) Let's put another shrimp on the barbie. He even recorded a little audio there. Thank you, (laughs) Jay. Um, It's been a few months since my last feedback, so as a reminder, I'm the guy who is currently a private or a PPL and in training for a CPL and who moved to Australia specifically for flight training from the UK. First of all, I wanted to add my belated congratulations to Captain Dana on his upgrade. Yay! And to say that he is an inspiration to those of us who make a career change to follow our aviation dreams. Oh, that's that's a terrible... That's me an inspiration to anybody? You're, you are a perspiration to many of us, Dana. I, I know. Hey, Jay, thank you very much for, that, uh, for those accolades. Appreciate it. Very good. Um, no, he's not from Accolade. Uh, he's from... Uh, no, accolades. Uh, oh, okay. Uh, just wanted... 
Wow. I just would like to chip into the recent discussion regarding flight sharing platforms such as Wingly and others that are likely to become more and more prevalent in this age of peer-to-peer services. A friend of mine back in the UK is currently building time and has recently decided to sign up as a pilot for Wingly. He's a great guy, but my experience with him as an individual highlighted to me exactly where the flaw in platforms such as Wingly lie. A few years ago, we took a car journey from Edinburgh to London and to say, is it Edinburgh? I always mispronounce that, don't I? Edinburgh. Edinburgh. No, you're fine. Edinburgh. Edinburgh. Okay. It's Edinburgh. Yeah. Well, Edinburgh. Edinburgh is not (laughs) how the locals would say it. (laughs) Edinburgh, right? Uh, To London. And uh, I'll try to clean all this up in post, but probably not. Um, And to say his car was poorly maintained was an understatement. So again, so we have all that in context. Let me reread that sentence. A few years ago, we took a car journey from Edinburgh to London. And to say his car was poorly maintained was an understatement. The oil was almost non-existent, brake pads worn almost bare, and two of the four tires dangerously underinflated. We made it there safely, but I couldn't help but feel that those sorts of traits in his personality, uh, the it-will-be-all-right mentality, is exactly the opposite of what you would hope for in a pilot. Now... That he is a now that he is a pilot, albeit a lowish hours PPL, I can't help but feel that the people who sign up to fly with him may not know what they are letting themselves in for. In short, whilst we would all fly with friends who we know and trust, we probably also know people that we wouldn't necessarily choose to get into the air with. Wingley removes any personal knowledge of the pilot that would otherwise serve as a potential warning of risky or unreliable behaviors. So that's just my two cents. Having said all that, I'm really unsure about how such things can be legislated against. It will be an interesting issue to watch over the next few years. That's for sure. Okay, that's all for me. Thanks to all of you for the great service to our community you do with this podcast. Blue sky. No, wait. Starry skies. I'm doing night VFR currently, tailwinds, etc. Jay from Sydney, Australia. Good day, mate. <laughs> Let's put another shrimp on the barbie. That's a uh, Jim Carrey um, <laughs> from I think Dumb and Dumber. I'm not sure of exactly what movie that was from, but or maybe that was from one of his pet detective movies. Does anybody know? I'll bet I know somebody in the chat room that would know. Come on, main man. Which, which movie, which Jim Carrey movie was that from? Do you know? Okay. Well, we wait for their answer. Let's uh, continue with uh, seven. No, eight. Sean. He says, does this qualify as FOD? And so I guess I have to click on this. It's The picture is not in the feedback. So we're going to look on Facebook. And uh, this is from... Uh-oh. A little bear. Running across the ramp. Is it a bad bear? It's a, yeah. And some very loud piece of machinery. Okay. Uh, that's from the I'm Leaving on a Jet Plane. The Oh, I'm sorry. That's the title of his post. The Alaska Life. And apparently somebody caught video of uh, a ramp somewhere up in Alaska at Ted Stevens Anchorage International Airport. And there was a bear running around the ramp. Very cute. Little, little baby bear, looks like. Yeah. And uh, can't be far so behind. the answer does, um, does that qualify as FOD? I guess it could. <laughs> if it was sucked into an engine or whatever. Yeah, if you jump down an engine or choose your hydraulics, I guess. 
Yeah. Oil goes to the engine. They can make dinner. They have some some uh, some good bear meat. Some good bear meat. All right. Yeah. Hamburg beer. There's poo anywhere other than in the woods. <laughs> That's a good they, question, Sean. They poo wherever they want to. No one's going <laughs> to stop them. So he says, would this be considered fought or does the bear need to make a deposit before it's considered debris? For that matter, do bear poo anywhere other than in the woods? And uh, again, I think he may be confused uh, with our show and confusing it with uh, some kind of a nature show or something. I don't know. Uh, Could be a hazard. Yeah. Well, Sean, thank you for the humorous question. Um, Let's see. We have some more audio feedback. This one from Thomas. Uh, hello, once again, APG crew wanted to drop you another line regarding a question that's been sitting on my mind for a while. You'll be relieved to know I trimmed a whole two minutes off the time from my last feedback, but I once again must apologize for my wordiness. Just for grins, I've attached some of the photos like before as photography is my main hobby and my other main subject matter besides aircraft fire apparatus is also fitting for this feedback. Here are some ARF uh, air rescue fire fighting is that what that stands for yeah i think so uh rigs for your pleasure for your viewing pleasure so we'll put the all this stuff in the show notes so you can see these really cool pictures of uh firefighting vehicles and now let's listen to thomas's audio feedback hey apg crew this is thomas just reaching out to y'all with another piece of feedback and uh something that's been on my mind for a little bit but finally decided to send it in as a question after listening to your last episode 335 hopefully not dating the feedback too much by saying that but um now that we have you know we're three captains uh regularly on the show with uh, captain dana captain jeff captain nick kind of wanted to get all of your opinions on this and uh just some feedback from obviously two different companies at least uh pilots what training are you given regarding handling emergencies beyond obviously actually controlling the aircraft getting the aircraft down safely and so on and when I say that, what I really mean is um, if you have a you know, passenger cell phone, as for instance, what you talked about in this last episode, they kind of triggered my memory on this. Or if you have a fire indication, you know, depending on if it's uh, fire in the uh, luggage hold, if it's fire in the cabin, fire in an engine, whatever the case may be, you know, the description that's just being given to you by a flight attendant potentially. How are you trained or, you know, what training do you receive to be able to make that call to go ahead and evacuate the aircraft versus having your passengers essentially shelter in place, uh, stay on the aircraft until fire rescue personnel can assess the situation. So I don't know if it happens, you know, I guess it could not happen at all, or I don't know at what level it happens. You know, is it something that's covered and recurrent? Is it something that you go over during CPL, ATP, um, you know, somewhere in that initial training process? But is there sort of a guidelines and best practices, you know, obviously we all try to learn everybody, you know, in any industry looks at past, um, you know, examples of positive and negative outcomes to try to learn from, but is there anything that your company, if you can speak to this, um, I don't know what you are and aren't allowed to kind of talk about as far as, um, company specific training, but what are you given as far as a resource to kind of guide you in making that determination? Or does it truly just come down to your personal opinion? You know, and I know we've, talked about stuff independently on the show before where, you know, Captain Nick, I recall uh, specifically talking about, you know, why was this flight diverting for this or why was this flight evacuated for this? So, you know, does it really truly just come down to you as a personal captain 
Um, or, you know, does the company kind of have an SOP um, in place that at least sets a guideline for you in making that call? Second part of this question that I think kind of goes hand in hand and um, actually got it from the guys over at Triad on the Opposing Bases podcast a few weeks back. When you listen to ATC tapes, a lot of guys deliver their fuel remaining. You know, when they declare a mayday, it's souls on board, fuel remaining. Their fuel remaining in time. Um, However, really what is needed or desired is fuel remaining in pounds. And the reason for this, um, having a little bit of background and knowledge about the fire rescue side of things, and I'm going to sound like a dog now because I'm talking about ARF. Um, That would be air rescue firefighting. But when ARF is, you know, announced or uh, dispatched to a mayday, they are trying to figure out the burn time, essentially, as morbid as that may seem to figure out how much fuel is going to be on board the aircraft. And the way they calculate that is by pounds. They're not concerned with your flight time remaining, and they don't really know how to calculate that backwards since they don't know the specific, you know, configuration of your aircraft, your burn times, you know, based on whatever emergency could be going on. They just need to know pounds so that they can make a general calculation on what kind of resources they're going to need on the ground. Just like you say, souls remaining so that you know what kind of EMS response is required. So... When you go into training, is that something that's covered? You know, are you told that you should deliver your fuel in pounds when you declare a mayday? Or is that something that's really dependent on ATC requesting it from you? Because obviously your task is saturated normally during a mayday. Um, You may not think about how to deliver your fuel. But is that something that's covered or is it really just dependent on ATC personnel asking you specifically fuel in pounds remaining? So, or fuel remaining in pounds. So beyond that, is there any other training you receive as far as talking to personnel on the ground, dealing with personnel on the ground in, um, you know, in an ARF response? So talking with whoever the point person is, typically there would be one person that would contact you on ground or on another uh, given frequency. And, you know, I know it can be confusing. Um, There's no consistent call sign. You know, there's not like fire departments do not all have one call sign. They're all different wherever you may go. You may have red one, crash one. Um, You know, you could have ARF1, any myriad of different call sign options depending on what airport you're at. Um, You know, some airports it's dependent on, we have an airport here locally where the aircraft is red 49. Well, there aren't 48 other ones. It's just that that's the fire station at the airport. So they're red 49. Um, But somebody landing there is not going to know who red 49 is necessarily. So what kind of training do you receive about talking to personnel on the ground assisting them as far as obviously shutting down engines and things like that. Is it something that you really just tackle on a task by task basis or is it something that actually comes up in training as well? But regardless, uh, just uh, hope the feedback finds y'all well and blue skies as always. Thanks for a great show. Well, thank you, Thomas. Uh, yeah, you make some very good points and ask some very good questions. And, you know, that is one of the episodes uh, that I did not uh, hear uh, on the opposing bases because I did hear the previous episode where they posed the question by Captain Al regarding uh, how do you express fuel remaining uh, in in time or in weight and uh, I need to go back and listen to that particular show. So I'm not sure what the, what their conclusions were regarding that. Um, and I'm not sure if that's something that's different uh, from different parts of the world. But uh, Lisa and I were just talking about the fact that all throughout our training, especially in the military, it was always when they ask you how much fuel re- remaining you have, we always expressed it in amount of time or endurance. Uh, but it makes sense that the people... Uh, f- with the uh, firefighting equipment, they don't really care how much you know 
fuel you have endurance wise they care about how much fuel they're going to have to deal with when you hit the hit the runway or you know have the firefighting capabilities and etc i think what cap now was uh saying on opposing bases was why do you insist on having it in pounds because the aircraft uh, like airbuses will measure it in kilograms or tons so what he was saying is look when you're asking that question, how much fuel is remaining, um, and you want it in pounds, the last person needs to do the conversion are the pilots trying to deal with the emergency. We tell you what's on. We just look at the, the gauge and go, I've got 23 tons. Uh, someone else uh, further down the, uh, the food chain can convert that to pounds if you want it in pounds because it's a simple conversion. But We've got way too many things on our hands at the time to make that conversion for you to put it in pounds. Whereas the the opposing bases guys, now I might be wrong here, or certainly there was an opinion that um, it ought to be expressed in pounds. It may not have come from uh, RH and AG, but it may well have come from the feedback listener. Okay, I so, misunderstood. I thought that the controversy was whether we're expressing an endurance time or that came into weight. it as well, Jeff. But okay. I think I think basically it came out to the fact that yeah, um, you their traffickers need it in time. The fire services need it in quantity. Uh, and I I agree with you, Nick. That uh, NAL that uh, you know, if you express it in kilograms, because that's what you're seeing in your airplane. Yeah, uh, we're we're in the middle of an emergency situation. We don't need to be doing the math to calculate, you know, to do the conversion into pounds. Somebody else can do that. That's not in the emergency situation. So I agree with that. Yeah. You know, just having come through training, uh, you know, to answer some of Thomas's. Uh, first part of the question is, do we have SOPs as far as how do we handle emergencies? And the answer is absolutely, yes, we do. We actually have uh, SOPs in, in our FOM, and then we have, uh, which is our flight operations manual. We also have guidance in our QRHs for quick reference handbook, and that's generally what we're referencing, especially once we start coming down towards evacuation. Now, as far as, uh, you know, whether we're going to evacuate an aircraft, um, you know, is it an immediate, is an immediate need? Is, is a cabin filled? up with the with fire and smoke if that's the case you know it, it's definitely going to come down a judgment call we we do normally have the ability especially when we're airborne to go ahead and, and uh, oh, you know as we like to say expand our expand our team so we can you know bring in the dispatch via radio dispatch and uh, to handle most emergencies and most emergencies are not uh, time critical in other words sit back uh, think about things consider things and we at acme uh, we transfer generally transfer controls of the aircraft uh, flying aircraft to, to the pilot uh, flying would be the first officer so the captain can really get into the emergency evaluate what's going on and make the decisions that need to be made uh, you know expanding a team and if it's time critical then you know you have to use your best judgment uh, there is no checklist per se to go ahead and evacuate the aircraft this is an evacuation checklist, but to make the, the decision, um, it really is uh, a command decision at, at that moment. So I think it's more of a, um, you know, a, a judgment call at that point. So uh, that's the first part of his question that, that he had asked. Oh, very good answer. Thank you, Dana. Yeah, but as you said, the we can learn about all these things. We have standard operating uh, policies regarding certain situations, and then we use our our quick reference handbook uh, when we're dealing with an abnormal or emergency situation. But when it comes down to the final 
you know, the, the, the buck stops here. Uh, what do we evacuate or not? That's a judgment call. And you hope that you make the right decision because you can guarantee that if you uh, initiate an evacuation, there will be injuries. Uh, but you know, that may be better than, you know, several injuries or even fatalities if you don't. Certainly. And the other, the other part of the question was, um, you know, communication with ARF and uh, the communication with ARF is just realistically, you know, it's different at, at every airport as, as uh, Thomas is uh, alluding to. And we, we just established communication the best that we can. And I think we listened to a really good uh, example of that, not necessarily today, but I think it was the last episode when you're talking about the uh, F, uh, the air marshal that was uh, uh, on the aircraft and, and the communication that was going on between the pilot and the tower and, and the local local people coming up to the aircraft. So if somebody plugs in on, uh, and I think ARF usually will use uh, ground frequency to talk to you, so they'll come in and, and uh, you know, you'll just coordinate back and forth, you know, make sure the aircraft's secure, engines, uh, you know, any fire going on back there, any passengers, you know, if we're going to move the aircraft, anybody decide to get off the aircraft, and that's, you know, the captain's responsibility to coordinate with, with both the ARF and, and, of course, most importantly, the flight tents and the back make sure that nobody has uh, evacuated the aircraft prior to moving it so we you know we need to you know use a professional uh, professional level of um, experience and and learn how to you know not learn but uh, go ahead and communicate as we would normally uh, in in any situation and that's uh, that prevents a lot of issues you know many of the uh, we we um, have atc audio on so many of these incidents um, on this show and Every single time, there always seems to be confusion uh, with the, the folks in the cockpit, the, the folks in the tower and the uh, emergency vehicles on the ground and what frequency they're, they're on. I wish there was some kind of a standardiz- standardization when it comes to that so that we everywhere, like a, a certain size airport, you know, that has these kind of uh, services uh, and facilities that this is the standard. Everybody goes to this frequency or, you know, everybody be on ground control or whatever. Um I wish that that was more standardized, honestly. Yeah, but the trouble is all around the world, uh, it's it's different. Each country has its own uh, procedures. Each airport has its own variations. It becomes a nightmare. So you just kind of assume a generic um, system that there'll be a frequency, there'll be somebody on it. The bloke who's talking on it will probably be in charge, Um, you know, just, just talk to him like you're on a telephone if you can't come up with a call sign and uh, ask him what's going on outside your airplane. Hopefully he can speak enough English to be able to uh, give you the information you need to make the decision. Yep. Anything to add, Lisa? No? I don't think y'all covered it. All right. The big question is, is it safer to stay on site, uh, stay on board than get over uh, overboard? So... You know, that, that's actually a quite a simple decision. If it's starting to become intolerable inside the aircraft, put everyone outside because that's going to be safer. Yeah. Okay. Well, we're getting close to the end of the show, and we have a couple of uh, pieces of audio feedback that I want to make sure that we do on today's show. And uh, they are from our good friend down under in uh, the beautiful North Island of New Zealand in Wellington. His name, Glenn Towler, and uh, he sent in, uh, as I said, two separate pieces of audio feedback dealing with different things and some photos to go with each one, which you'll be able to find in the show notes. 
for the show, episode 338. So let's start with this first one. And he says, uh, hi, Jeff, just a bit of feedback about what I did before Oshkosh this year. Tailwinds. Here we go. Hello, Captain Jeff, Captain Dana, Dr. Steph, and Captain Nick. It's Glenn here from New Zealand with some more feedback. Um, I just want to say what a great community we have here in the APG. Um, talking about the stuff I did before I went to Oshkosh this year. A uh, big thank you to Michael Renwick, a fellow APG syndrome sufferer, who gave me a, a great tour of the Acme technical operations where they do all the engine strip downs and the heavy maintenance, uh, some of the maintenance on the, on the jets. Like we saw a two A330s, a mad dog, and we even saw a US Navy Poseidon. Let's go under the maintenance in one of the Delta hangers there. I mean, Acme hangers. Uh, yeah, it was great. I'm really good. And also, an um, interesting thing that I did when I went to visit a friend of mine who lives in near Min- in Minnesota. He has a, he's a part owner in a seaplane. So he took me up for a, like a two-hour seaplane ride over Minnesota and some pools. And we even actually landed on the River Mississippi. And it's quite interesting. We we come down. It's quite sporty today, but you know, we come down and landed on the river, and it's bouncing, and it's like. Uh, in other words, you can always go around. Suddenly sprung to mind, and I actually said to him, "Look, I think we can go around." He says, "Oh yes, I think we should." That's a really good call. So, just that, just no thought I'd actually say it. That I'd say to anyone, "Ah, oh, you can always go around." Yeah, it was, um, you know, looking forward, of course, to Oshkosh 19. Do some, uh, do something. Oh, I'm sure we will. I'm sure we'll all be there. All, uh, all will be well. Anyway, uh, keep up the good work. Uh, blue skies, tailwinds, and unlimited IPAs. Uh, Glenn out. Thank you, Glenn. Unlimited IPAs. I like the sound of that. Um... Yep, and I don't know if you heard the little audio clip I played there in the background, the uh, the go-around song. Um, interesting experience. Thanks, Glenn, for sharing. And uh, here is his second piece of feedback, a little bit more recent. Hello, my fellow APG syndrome sufferers. Hello, Dr. Steph, Captain Jeff, Captain Nick, Captain Dana. It's Glenn from New Zealand again. I'm sure you know my voice by now. And I'm here with uh, Lucas Diamond, and we've just we've actually committed aviation for a go figure. Yeah, how unusual. So yeah, and we had a really nice flight today in his rental Cessna 172, flying over um, over the North Island of New Zealand. So um, over to you, Lucas. I'm, I'm on the Glee Tower APG hour. <laughs> How are you? Um, yep, Glenn uh, is now the proud recipient of about 40 minutes PIC because we had a very long flight today and have it for a, for a long time. So um, yep, went up to uh, a place called Whanganui here um, and then went into real beer country uh, to look for a bridge that um, is no longer used anymore. It's kind of a... And um, we had a devil finding it. <laughs> Glenn finally spotted it out the side of the window so we, we did a few orbits of that and got a few shots. A bit of a bucket list moment for me. 
wanted to go up and look at the boats where we were. So we uh, came back around to the Tararua's and then uh, back in for a landing. So it was a great uh, 3.4 hours on the logbook. We stopped at a pee in, <laughs> in Whanganui, but it wasn't too bad. We saw it, um, was it Convia 380? Yes, it was. Yeah. 580. Uh, 580. Convia 580. I was thinking of yeah. the 340 sale. Yeah. Um, Convia uh, 580 from uh, Chathams. Over to you. Uh, yeah, so we had a really good time. Um, we were just sitting here having a, an IPA or two mm-hmm. and a pizza. IPA and and um, yeah, I mean, yeah, what, a, what a really nice day. And just uh, <laughs> as I said in my previous feedback, what a great community we have here in the APG that we can go out and do stuff like this together and have a really good time. So, well, that's it, uh, and uh, that'd be Glenn out. Glenn, thanks for uh, sending that in. It is really a small world, this world of aviation and, and uh, this world of aviation podcasting, where two guys that listen to the same show get together and go flying and drinking beer and eating pizza and doing all kinds of great stuff. Beer and pizza, that's, that sounds good. In that order, I hope. Yes. It especially <laughs> sounds really good to have Nathan Deaton's monday oh you should probably eat nope it's two it's wednesday days. two more days wow you're gonna do a full week huh yep at least crazy man okay he's yeah he's doing yeah he's the one that actually uh tell you <laughs> jeff is the fifth captain that is doing that diet that i've flown with in the last month i've corrupted them all yeah i guess so no, it's only jeff today, so they're all flaking out with uh low blood sugars <laughs> my blood have sugar, to wake my, them blood, up. my blood sugar is fantastic, and I have the most energy when I'm not eating. Yeah, it's, I, it's I all rode, about insulin sensitivity. I, I rode stuff. ten and a half miles on my pedal bike today, not my motorcycle. And I've been nice. going. I haven't even turned TV on once all day because I've been going all day. This is the first time I sat down to do the show. Mm-hmm. So it works for some people. Okay. Um, it's not a dieting show, so we're not going to go off no, on that tangent. To. Yeah, not at all. Um, but uh, yeah, interesting stuff, though, for sure. Uh, so thank you again, Glenn, for uh, sharing that with us, and we look forward to seeing you in uh, Oshkosh 2019. We have some exciting developments going on behind the scenes that we hope to uh, share with everybody soon. But uh, needless to say, I think that our our big meetup for 2019 is going to be in Wisconsin, and uh, we uh, plan to have a great time. And we hope that you can join us there as well. Uh, let's see. I think uh, Liz was telling me that uh, number 14 is a quick one. And um, I don't know. Did you guys get to see this video um, of the uh, – well, let me see. Let me play this here. Yes, I did see that video. Um, it's a very interesting music in the background. Hope you're enjoying that. Um so basically, this is security camera footage. So that's why the person that did this shared this video, put this music to it. And it's a time lapse video of a runway. I'm not sure. Is it LAX? Yes. And uh, so we have airplanes taxiing by, uh, a couple of parallel taxiways, and there's some vehicular traffic as well. Uh, I see now coming into view an Alaska Q400. And then it has to stop for a moment. And then there's this uh, truck that has a couple of uh, pallets. What do you call those things? Uh, ULDs. Yeah, ULDs. Yeah. Thank you. Um, decides to uh, drive behind the uh, Q400. And guess what? Oh, yeah. One of the Q- uh, ULDs gets blown off the uh, 
trailer and into the path of uh, a United 737. And the uh, ULD actually hits the right engine nacelle. I'm wondering if the course is in time lapse. I bet the uh, the United guys are probably going, quick, shut down that engine. I don't know <laughs> that we weren't there, but that's what I would be thinking anyway. So, you know, Jeff, uh, after working on the ramp for many years and dealing with those uh, containers, they are extremely lightweight when there's nothing mm-hmm. in them. So it doesn't take a whole lot to blow them uh, it, it, across the ramp. And that is, uh, that's been demonstrated numerous times, not only in this video, but uh, over the years. Um, so in the way that it moved, the way that blew away and the way it moved across the ramp, it, it would, I would venture to guess there was nothing in there whatsoever. They're, they only weigh yeah. maybe 70, 80 pounds at the most. Yeah, I don't even think they're kind of like that. a sail, you know. Yeah, it's, when it's, we it's, get... it's an empty aluminum can. It's basically what it is, and it, mm-hmm. it's very lightweight material, obviously, because you know we we put stuff on the aircraft. You know what what this device is 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 a, is a, a preload bin. So you can go ahead. It's a container that you in the back room will load up all the cargo and or um, bags. So you go stack them. Then they'll be uh, loaded on a flat loader. Uh, Basically, it's a big old can loader that puts them into the belly of a wide-body aircraft. So that way, you don't have to sit there and try to stack every single bag or, or cargo into the, the the belly of the airplane. So when they're empty, they are extremely light and uh, easily moved. Even heavy winds can can push them away. Now, normally, on the uh, the loading cart, there's lockdown mechanisms that are supposed to lock them. So it's like a little latch mechanism on four sides that that latch over the edges of it and hold it in place. So that apparently was not uh, engaged. And that the person driving the uh, the tug with the ULDs, uh, trailered ULDs behind it, I think made an error in judgment. I would imagine that they get good training on, you know, not driving too close behind jets and uh, propeller airplanes uh, because of the fact, you know, this jet wash or a prop wash. Um, and I think that this person maybe just got impatient and cut it too close. But they probably got in a little bit of trouble for that, I would imagine. Where was the airport again? LAX. Ah, yeah, okay. Los Angeles International. In fact, I yeah, you, know exactly you, where it is because I can see the gate number, and that that's the uh, Alaska uh, slash United Terminal, and we used to share it at Acme. We used to share this uh, Terminal 6 uh, array of gates toward the end of the terminal here, so I know exactly where that is, looking south. I've never been there. Yeah, it's an interesting place. Okay, um, let's see. I think we're getting... Pretty darn close to the end of the show. Is there any other piece of feedback that you all see in there that we might want to quickly talk about? Like, uh, for instance, what does Louisiana Steve say? Oh, that's a long one. Sorry. Sorry, Louisiana Steve. We're going to have to save that for the next show. Um, Ivor uh, sent us a quick uh, feedback. Hello, all. Uh, where is Hicktown Rick? I mentioned the Florida freighter as I have a question that he would be all over, but sadly I'll have to accept your fumbled attempts at answering this top quality inquiry. (laughs) He has a very high opinion of himself, Ivor, and we do too. Uh, Here we go. I recently received this lovely iPad for my birthday. Well-deserved, I must say. When I unwrapped it, my first thought was to put it on charge, but no, it was almost fully charged. 
My daughter-in-law said her phone was the same when she got it. So, to my point, when these batteries or bits of technology that have batteries installed are shipped all around the world, would they be safer if that battery had no charge in it? Or do they still burn and possibly run away even in a no-charge state? Does the state of charge influence the severity of the burn? If this question is too difficult, feel free to pass it on to the PTUK boys. I believe they have the brains and the looks to handle it. Not that you girls and boys don't have some good points. Anywho, love and kisses, Ivor. We love Ivor. And you can tell he has a lot of respect for us. <laughs> Doesn't he? No. Yeah. Uh, I don't know the answer to that. Do you, uh, Nick? Perhaps maybe the PTUK boys and girls would well, be better at answering this. A battery, uh, in order to uh, generate heat. Uh, that causes a runaway it needs charge. It, it, without energy, there's there's no heat. There's no without heat. There's no reduction in resistance. Without that, you don't get a runaway. So yes, there has to be a charge in the battery for it to run away. Uh, otherwise, it doesn't go anywhere. It sits there like an old tortoise. So, so then, why do we have we ship these things with uh, charge? There must be a reason for. Oh it. yes, there uh, is. And uh, from okay. memory, Apple uh, were the guys that thought this because they said um, when you get, first get your wonderful uh, iPod out of, uh, as it was in those days, out of its lovely shiny box, the last thing you want to do is to have to plug it in, wait four hours before you can play with it. So they started shipping uh, them with charge. And of course, in those days, they were probably um, not uh, nickel cadmium. They were the old... Um, what were they called? The old, the old star batteries. Yeah, well, alkaline. Oh. Yeah, thank you. Well done, Dana. <laughs> alkaline batteries, which didn't have this problem. So, uh, but of course, they the customer expects now when you get hold of your new iPhone, as I did yesterday. I got a brand new iPhone. Oh, um, look at you! Which one did you get? Uh, the eight plus. Oh, 8 nice. Plus. Okay. That's my birthday present, the new 8 Plus. Happy birthday. Thank you for your birthday. Yeah, it's not even your birthday month yet. Yeah, I know, but uh, I won't. I'll be away for my birthday. I'll be in Washington. So I got oh, okay. a really birthday present. Um, so the answer is uh, they, they, the, the customer wants them with charge. So they arrive with charge. And as such, uh, they are dealt with, uh, you know, you don't transport a whole bunch of uh, iPads with charge without considering them as a potential threat. So they're dealt with in the same way as if you were transporting a whole bunch of just batteries on their own. Uh, and yes, it would be safer. But that's the way the industry wants them. They're, if they're packed sufficiently well, they shouldn't suffer any problems and they shouldn't have any runaways. So fingers crossed it all works. But, yeah, you're quite right. Uh, if It would be safer to have no charge anymore. Well, everything is run on a wing and a prayer anyway in our business. So, right, and you, you certainly, know, if you take a, if you take a look at how many pieces of equipment in the world are on aircraft at any given time and being shipped at any given time, and the the the, the, the amount of incidents that happen to occur, uh, you know, the the uh, insurance the actuaries, I think, is that's what the people that calculate out the uh, risk factors. Um, I would say it's actually, even though it's a risk, obviously. If it goes, goes it goes, um, and it doesn't go very well. Um, but I would say that the risk factor is actually fairly low 
even though they can run away. And, uh, you know, I don't know the answer to this question, but would it matter to the level of state of charge? I mean, if a, if it has a very low uh, charge in it, enough to, let's say, start the device and, and get it going versus a fully charged battery, does that make a difference in the, the potential for runaway? I, I don't know the answer to that question. Well, I think, Lisa, didn't you uh, study and uh, you have a degree in uh, battery technology? Electrical engineering. Yeah. Whoa. No, no. <laughs> no, I don't. <laughs> but I, I can tell you that I uh, we had to listen to a talk from the leaders of FedEx. I don't know if I'm allowed to say that, but and they said that that is their number one concern, nickel, nickel cadmium batteries and shipping them. Yeah. Uh, Lisa yeah. has a degree in passing gas. <laughs> hmm. yeah. I really can't say anything at all. Haven't heard that one before. Yeah. <laughs> well, they were That's a good one. Were flying, weren't they? <laughs> <laughs> Did you ever pass any gas to any RAF or RAAF uh, jets? It's a long time ago, but I think I did. Yeah. I had several deployments over there where we were all flying together. So Yeah, they used sure to strap a, a limp 12 foot of hose on the end of that stupid boom and then uh, <laughs> wave it around in the sky and expect us to make contact with it. And we were going, you've got to be kidding me. It was a big target on a KC-10, that drogue, right? Yeah, but the length of hose was like, oh, give me a break. We're normally used to a 40-foot hose. Gives you a bit of leeway. With the 12-foot dangly bit stuck on the end of a boom, oh, that didn't really work. Was the, uh, was the F-4 easier than the F-18 or vice versa? Much or did much. It the F-4 was probably easier. It had a slightly smaller bow, so the, the drogue moved uh, less. But uh, no, they, every aircraft has its own foibles when it comes to uh, drogue and probe refueling, for sure. <laughs> cool. Well, sorry, we went off on that tangent, but that's, that's fun stuff to talk about, I think. <laughs> Okay, well, you know what, folks? We're going to call it quits for today's show, and uh, we're going to let you know that if you are new to the show and you want to learn more about it, you can head over to Air, Airline Airline Pilot Guy, uh, AirlinePilotGuy.com, our website, and uh, there you'll find information about the show, the crew, the community, merchandise, the coffee fund, and so much more. Again, that's AirlinePilotGuy.com. And we are also, well, we have a couple of apps that are free, ad-free and free to download from either the iOS App Store or the Google Play Store if you have an Android uh, machine. And uh, there you can enable push notifications, and hopefully you'll get the push notification. Uh, I did today on my my iPhone that uh, we're recording a show. And then after I finish doing all the editing and post it, um, if you have one of these apps and you have the push notifications set up properly, you should receive a message that it's ready for your consumption. So check out those things. And uh, we're also on social media. Captain Nick? Uh, Yeah, we are on uh, Twitter. You can just uh, attract our attention by going at APG Crew. And if you're looking to find us on Facebook, then uh, just look for the standard Facebook uh, intro slash airline pilot guy. Now, when you came in, Lisa, when you were going by the bathroom there, did you happen to notice that man that was in there? No. Hello. Hello. Come on out. This is your part of the show. Okay, just move over a little bit so you can hit the microphone. Okay, here we go. Take it away, Hall. APG listeners, please join us on our Slack team. Slack is a communication, coordination, and sharing platform that works on your mobile, laptop, or browser. 
on Slack, we share ideas and news. We suggest episode and Plain Tales topics. We plan events and meetups. To get into the Slack team, please email me at slack at airlinepilotguy.com. That's S-L-A-C-K, Sierra, Lima, Alpha, Charlie, Kilo, at airlinepilotguy.com. Or send me a tweet with your preferred email address to at Hillel, and I'll send you an invitation. That's Hillel, spelled H-I-1-1-E-1, Hotel India, 1-1, Echo 1. And see you in Slack. Thanks, Hillel. Now, get back to the bathroom. Okay. And, uh... I think that's about it. So until next time, wishing you all clear skies, unlimited visibility, and tailwinds. Take care, and God bless. Bye, everybody. Hasta la vista, baby. Adios, amigos. Good day.